0: скажи мне, американец, в чем сила.
1: А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться?
0: Да. Ух,
1: красота-то какая, лепота. Таможня дает добро. И вообще не называй меня, пожалуйста, верой. Кто я? Вот кто это. Отныне, в русской земле, единый can't live without Не я My name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I am joined by a guest, and today my guest is Dr. Sarah Decker. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for coming on the show.
0: Hi, Ali. Thanks for having me.
1: So, um, before we get started, Sarah, um, could you tell us a little bit more uh, about yourself?
0: Yeah, so I am professionally a medieval historian. I am currently teaching at Indiana University and working on a book project on Jewish and Christian women's economic activities in medieval Catalonia. And in my spare time, I guess, technically, I have a podcast at Media Evil, where I talk about medieval movies and what they get right, what they get wrong, and what they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great show, and you Thank were you. kind enough to have have me on for for an episode a little while back.
0: Yes, on the Vikings, which was a lot of fun.
1: Yes, I got to re- revisit my undergraduate kind of like Scandinavian eight hundred to twelve hundred module that I did in Denmark, which was which was a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, uh, tell tell you what, um, for for those who haven't caught Sarah's show yet, uh, spoiler alert, generally. Filmmakers and yeah, pop culture makers generally get more stuff wrong than than they than they get right. I would say. <laughs> oh,
0: absolutely. The uh, the short version of my description of the podcast is definitely just medieval movies and why they're wrong. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's a that's a much neater tagline than I think I've got for this show. But uh, yeah, never mind. But definitely, it seems like I, I mean, it's been going on for a while now, but for the last decade to two it feels like for somebody who's a who's a fan of that particular historical period there seems like there's been a lot of pop culture interest in 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 the middle ages at least like superficially um yeah yeah so you would agree with that
0: yeah definitely and i will say also i mean i think game of thrones is a big part of it in terms of really popularizing it to a greater extent
1: Oh, absolutely. Like, I feel like Vikings, you know, which Mm -hmm. we just mentioned, I feel like that would not have got made in in a pre-Game of Thrones world, but it showed that there was an audience for sort of that, but with, you know, the fantastical elements kind of stripped out. And I think in its turn, I mean, I'm bound to say this as a bit of a Tolkien nerd, but (laughs) I feel like the original... Um, Lord of the Rings trilogy showed yeah. that you could spend a lot of money doing something in a, you know, as you would term it, like medieval esque fantasy universe, right? Um, that you know has a lot of the kind of things that people associate with the uh, with the Middle Ages,
0: yeah. Which of course makes sense since Tolkien himself was actually a professional medievalist,
1: yes. Yeah, so, so who actually you know knew what he was uh, he was he was talking about,
0: yeah. And George R.R. Martin, I will say, has done his research. I mean, obviously, it's it's fantasy, it's not the real Middle Ages, but there are definitely a lot of things in Game of Thrones that I'll talk about one of these days on my podcast where you can definitely see where he got things from if you know the period.
1: Yes, well, indeed. And I suspect we will return to that later in this intro, I I guess. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm not wanting to get onto that uh, too soon. But I did want to ask um what would you say besides the you know the success of you know game of thrones and lord of the rings before it showing from a commercial point of view for the you know program makers and and whatever showing that there's a market for that what do you put that down that down to the, the fact that people are actually watching these and are and are interested when perhaps in the 90s say it seems like it was less of a thing
0: I wonder if it's almost some kind of uh, kind of fantasy escapism in some ways. Mm. I mean, obviously, the real Middle Ages is not equivalent to the fantasy Middle Ages. But I think especially in the popular imagination, they're very deeply intertwined. Mm. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's just as the world gets worse, we need more avenues to escape. And <laughs> I wonder actually, if in some ways, I think it's interesting that the medieval world that increasingly is popularized in Game of Thrones is a big part of this is this gritty, quote, realistic medieval world. It's uh, yes, not quote unquote more, <laughs> um kind of sanitized medieval world that you see in, uh, you know, for example, some of the kind of classic Arthurian films.
1: Mm, yes, where it's all very idealized and, yeah. and everyone is kind of like a a model chivalric knight where they're, you know, always looking after the, the interests of the weak and being like, right. you know, how... A medieval knight would have liked to have seen themselves, but mm-hmm. perhaps, perhaps, generally wasn't um...
0: right. And I think that there is a lot going on in terms of how, in our own very violent, in this current moment, you know, disease-ridden society, mm. I think there is a deep desire to think that things have improved. And that Mm. the belief in that relies on essentially an exaggerated celebration of how terrible things were in the past.
1: Yes, And so I
0: think that's a big part of it is that there's this like, oh, let's look at how bad things were back then. So we can say, look, how better things are now. And I think there's a question as to to what extent that's really true in terms of, you know, progress narratives. But
1: Mm. yes, yeah, it's interesting because you tend to I tend to think of the kind of progress narratives as being a very kind of like sort of 20th century thing but we still very much do it i think yeah Um, but yeah in in terms of specifics so what is it that popular versions of the uh, of the middle ages typically get reliably wrong or reliably exaggerate would you say
0: I would say certainly the hyper violence is something that is uh, very striking and not that there wasn't violence in the medieval world, but that violence is uh, much less disordered than it tends to be presented as Mm. being and uh, not quite so constant as it's presented as being right yeah so that's yeah that's a definitely a big part of it um
1: yeah and the other thing that i find as you know admittedly not a a medieval professional but but as somebody who is kind of educated in that general area is that there's a great compressing and flattening of the like the diversity of yes. of the middle ages it's kind of like they treat because if you if you want to, you know, do the the kind of like the, I mean, you know, obviously all boundaries are kind of arbitrary. But if we say that the boundaries are from the fall of the Western Roman Empire to let's say either the fall of Constantinople to the Turks or you know uh, Columbus setting off on his right. on his his voyage, that's a that's basically a thousand years of history. But yeah. you wouldn't know it from the way it's typically depicted where, you know, the yeah. conditions in in kind of like when the Vikings are landing in England for the first time are, you know, supposedly very similar from mm. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, 13th century Italy.
0: Yeah, it's also great. I've seen multiple movies that have had people returning from crusades in the Holy Land in order to arrive precisely in time for the Black Death. <laughs> which would right. be very hard since the last crusade to the Holy Land ended approximately, uh, I think it's 80 years before the Black Death.
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I-, I guess the-, the popes were declaring crusades for, you know, quite a few hundred years off to the point where they stopped getting like a number.
0: Right. And there's also, I mean, there's crusades in the Baltics. Uh, there are uh, battles in the Iberian Peninsula that are termed crusades. there's fights against heretics that are termed crusades. Uh, but there really oh, yeah. aren't organized crusades that go as far as the Holy Land after the mid 13th century.
1: Right, right. So yeah, the the, the fact that you have people c- like coming back from crusades all the time is uh, yeah. yeah, just seems to be like a, a convenient... Well, it's the Middle Ages. Of course, there are crusades. It's like well, right. I mean, they didn't start doing them until like well after William the Conqueror. So yeah,
0: and uh, and you mentioned diversity, and actually the the other direction mm. that I was wondering if you were going to go with this that I'd like to bring up now as well, if that's okay, is um sure diversity that uh, they're is a lot of scholarship increasingly about first of all the fact that medieval Europe was not a world populated exclusively by white people and no. yet the vast majority of films that are indeed all white people or maybe like one token person of color and that's mm. also true of fantasy even despite the fact that you know we can suspend our disbelief about dragons but apparently not about <laughs> people of color and <laughs> indeed then, in addition to that, of course, the big minority group that most European countries and polities would have had at some point is Jews, and there are almost no depictions of Jews in medieval films.
1: No, yeah, that's they seem kind of uh, conspicuous by their absence. Yeah, and also another thing that tends to be missed and tends to be missed on a on a lot of things, just that uh, like anything set pre-World War II is that populations were a lot more mixed and borders were a lot more fluid than we tend to, like I say we, but the way things are popularly perceived.
0: Yeah. And I will also say one of the things that I found very frustrating in terms of uh, things coming up in the news, it was the insistence on describing Trump's wall as being medieval technology. Mm. When not to say that there weren't walls in the Middle Ages, but they're not about border control. They simply didn't have quite that same idea of borders. I mean, they're about purely like defense in a military setting.
1: Yeah, they tended to be around cities, right? Or you know, or at the center of a city. It was like a strong point that if let's say the mongols turned up uh (laughs) uh, or whoever that you had somewhere to retreat and you know whoever was was turning up would have to put you to a siege and often putting someone to a siege was as unpleasant for the besiegers as it was for the besieged and you know you'd
0: you never really want to do siege warfare
1: no it's it's bad for all involved um (laughs) But yeah, that whole idea that you can just kind of like draw a line <laughs> across mm-hmm. the country and, and just say, "Oh, we're going to have a a wall here." It's like, mm, no. I mean, the Romans tried that a few times, but uh,
0: right and yeah, and it really but, is but never only about very small
1: places like Britain,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah, and it's really never about keeping people who want to settle out in that way. That's uh, never the purpose of it. It's some they sometimes have a kind of function to preserve quarantines during the black death mm. but with the exception of that situation they're as i said they're not about preventing immigration
1: no it's it's kind of a more like i guess guiding things down channels so that you can kind of like keep an eye on it rather than yeah. just you know, completely keep people out.
0: Right. Or like getting money that like, oh, okay, you're coming through, you're coming in like you pay a toll when you come through the city gate.
1: Yes. Oh, and boy, did they enjoy tolls and customs in, in yep. the Middle Ages from from what I can tell about the stuff that I've sort of working backwards from like the French Revolution and all the stuff that mm-hmm. people got really sick of uh, and that was still kind of in place. Yeah. In, you know, in, in a lot of Europe, like into the 19th century, it's kind of like, mm-hmm. wow. <laughs> Uh, I think that's the other that's the other thing is that is the continuity from the Middle ages that people don't necessarily realize in terms yeah. of ideas and practices, but also the stuff like and this comes up a lot in your show that was actually early modern i mean yes, you can say all distinctions are you know artificial and kind of for convenience, but a lot of stuff that happens like after traditional end of the medieval period is like wrongly attributed to the medieval era in the in the in the popular consciousness i i'm thinking particularly yeah. of like persecution of witches
0: yeah that's definitely the biggest example that that's something that really takes off kind of starting in the late 15th century, but really the height of it is the 16th and 17th, Uh, you know, the Salem Witch Trials in the Americas, Mm -hmm. of course, being a good example, but also uh, King James, the first of England is very well known for his execution of a huge number of women, uh, women in particular, and some men accused of witchcraft.
1: Yes, yeah, he was really worried about witches. Which, I mean, I guess if you believe that they are real, mm-hmm. th- you know, you can understand people being scared of that. Yeah. Um,
0: if you but, like, if you yeah. genuinely believe that there are people who are in league with the devil to, you know, make people sick and destroy their crops and probably overthrow the government, then that that would be a cause for concern if that was a real thing.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's and that's the other thing that that comes up again and again on on your show is the fact that modern depictions of the middle ages don't take seriously how how seriously they took religion you know and it's yeah. kind of like every, everyone is a you know kind of postmodern cynic
0: yeah everybody's either it tends to be that the people we like tend to be just sort of like friendly skeptics and the yeah. people we don't like tend to be Hypocrites.
1: Yes, yeah. Who are to a lesser or greater extent consciously using religion to oppress people, and they kind of usually they know that they're doing it. They they yeah. They kind of like feel that it's a convenient weapon to oppress people, that rather than thinking like I'm going to torture these heretics because I actually think it's good for them. You know, <laughs> however twisted that thinking right. is. Um, we've kind of collectively dunked quite hard on Uh um, popular portrayals of, of the Middle Ages. Do you have any examples of like gold standards of people doing a good job of it?
0: Two of the things that I think actually do the best job personally are... A Knight's Tale and The Little Hours. And I don't think it's accidental that both are comedies. Hmm. Because I and that both actually have a number of deliberate anachronisms. That's actually true of Monty Python and the Holy Grail as well. Yeah. But that in the midst of having these deliberate anachronisms, they also get at some real things that are interesting about the ways in which the Middle Ages is not... In fact, the Dark Ages, a term that medieval historians hate and don't use, (laughs) but that movies still use all the time (laughs) and that is popularly often used. I tell my students every semester not to use it.
1: Yeah, even within professional circles, if there's any kind of like quote-unquote permissible usage it's very limited to like a few centuries like right after the collapse of the western roman empire it's it's kind of like then to charlemagne that people tend to apply it you know in the broader understanding it's just like anything post-rome to columbus counts as the dark ages it's just Right?
0: Like, yeah <laughs> and so i really like these films that have these deliberate anachronisms but that portray mm. the middle ages as a period that's playful and uh, creative and generative mm. and that's something that i think is exciting to see i yes. also very much have a soft spot for the lion in winter as uh, i think being one of the best portrayals of a particular real medieval historical figure Eleanor of Aquitaine who is my Mm. absolute favorite medieval or just at all period historical figure and she's somebody who is uh, extremely powerful in her own right and very self-assured and bled her sons in rebellion against her husband and (laughs) is just a fantastic figure and also one that if you get a portrayal of her right You can show a medieval woman who clearly has agency and is extremely intelligent and is extremely powerful, but who can do all those things without being basically a 21st century woman with 21st century ideas about women and gender.
1: Yes, uh, and and kind of like stuffed into a supposedly medieval appropriate costume, but we could probably right. have a whole <laughs> thread not, with more knowledge. With yes, yeah, like at least medieval inspired. It's probably from right. the wrong period, but somebody has seen a pa- a painting from some point in the in the Middle Ages and gone, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Yes, I I'm I haven't seen the Little Hours, but I really love a night's tale and yeah. I, I really enjoy its its sense of fun because that's certainly there were some very unpleasant times to live in the middle ages and probably being a peasant in most of them was very hard all yeah. of the time but it wasn't always doom and gloom
0: all right. the time you're not living in this just like everyday misery there's this weird trend in especially more recent medieval films mm. that I think there's like a medieval filter that makes everything just a little grayer.
1: <laughs> yes. And it
0: drives me absolutely nuts.
1: Yeah, I think you mentioned it. Uh, was it the Guy Ritchie Robin Hood?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, or the King Arthur also definitely does that. The the Guy Ritchie King Arthur.
1: I mean, I to be honest, I don't know that I've seen a single Guy Ritchie film beginning to end. I've just seen enough bits that I'm just kind of like... I really don't have time for you. And actually, no, his first Sherlock Holmes is kind of fun. Hmm. That's the only one I've seen beginning to end. I mean, probably Victorianists would have all sorts of problems <laughs> with that. But, but I think I think that's very much in the way of a knight's tale, kind of meant to be like a sort of a pastiche of the 19th century. And
0: Yeah, and his King Arthur... A lot of the anachronisms are deliberate. Um, a-, a number of them, I don't think are. Mm. I think he just doesn't know anything or care. But a number of them are certain. I mean, the fact that everybody basically talks like they're in Lockstock and two smoking barrels is mm. deliberate. I'm sure. But yeah,
1: th- and
0: that's a the, not even style the choice. problem with the
1: movie. No, no, that was one of those ones where you know, much in the way that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, you shouldn't really judge a movie by its trailer, but. I very much did with those two films, and I was just like, oh, I I do not have time for this, so I think I won't.
0: <laughs> it didn't get better. That was actually the movie that spawned the test that I do on my podcast, the Ift-Decker test. Where yes. in order to pass a movie has to have at least one named female character who doesn't die.
1: Yeah. Yes. If if you if you thought the Bechdel test was a low bar, <laughs> yeah, you, you you clearly are unfamiliar with the Ifdecker test.
0: <laughs> it's the I, I think it might be perhaps the lowest possible bar, and there have been a number of movies I have covered that have not passed.
1: Yes, that have just kind of like drilled straight headfirst into it and just you know collapsed in a in a disheveled heap.
0: Yeah, including these bizarre just that there are female characters that are important and yet are never named.
1: Mm, yeah, that's very Braveheart. weird. Wraithheart
0: is actually a big uh, culprit of this that it didn't even occur to me when I was watching it that uh Isabella uh, the his second love interest that she's never actually mm. named because I just know who she is, because she's a real person.
1: Yes, the, the, the she-wolf of France.
0: Uh. Yeah, yeah, and she's a big deal, like, I know who he is, who she is. But uh, I was watching it with my then co-host, Ollie Brady, and he's like, "They, why do you keep calling her Isabel? They never said her name.
1: Yeah, how do you know that's what she's called? It's because, well, because <laughs> I'm a medieval historian. I know <laughs> I know this stuff. Right, but it's like... I know who she's supposed to be.
0: Right, but that's a problem, that they never say her name in the movie. That's insane.
1: yeah. But I mean, it's Mel Gibson, so. Uh,
0: oh yeah, I mean, I'm not shocked, or not that shocked, but <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah how how do you just not name one of like your one of your like fourth most your like fourth most important character?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in terms of um, people with, let's say, a dubious record on their attitude towards uh, Jewish folks, uh, G.K. Chesterton is is somebody who. I'm aware of, like, very problematic attitudes that he espoused, mm-hmm. but he was definitely somebody who appreciated the medieval period. I mean, a lot of that comes yes. from his his very devout Catholicism, so if, if you like Catholicism, you're probably going to have a, a more positive uh, view right. of the medieval period than you might otherwise, but he he has a lot of intelligent and interesting things to say about it not being the popularly perceived like intellectual stagnation period yeah 20th and and well probably not just 20th like the enlightenment tended to just go oh well they're not us so they're stupid and backward and like what a bunch of dummies! Well,
0: and, <laughs> yeah, and going back to the Renaissance, that the whole uh, this whole concept of the Middle Ages, a lot of it is in part a kind of Renaissance marketing campaign,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: to make themselves look better than their quite recent ancestors, which has involved, among other things, that there are a number of achievements that are medieval that are then claimed as Renaissance. So, for example, mm. a lot of the kind of revival and reintroduction to the Latin West of a number of uh, uh, Greek works, in particular, mm. a lot of that's really happening due to 13th century translation projects from Arabic that happened in the Iberian Peninsula.
1: Yes, yeah, and the, the so-called I want to say like 12th century, like mini Renaissance,
0: right? Exactly, and that, so that as well,
1: and and we also tend to tend to forget just. We could possibly get into this, depending on how this episode goes. But uh, what was going on in in the Middle East and the and the Muslim right. world during this time is that it was, you know, a, a a time of you know incredible intellectual and cultural and creative flourishing that really is not well understood
0: yeah Um, and that's a big part of it too is that this idea of the middle ages as this intellectual dark ages in addition to i don't think actually being accurate for europe is also mm. very eurocentric because it's very centered on deeply ignoring the achievements in the islamic world uh many of which Mm. are and and farther east as well although that's not an area that i'm quite as familiar with but and that these are ignored and the islamic world in particular however though is very much not isolated from europe that these (laughs) achievements are being that the things that people are writing are being circulated to europe as well
1: yes and we've sort of touched on this already that ideas and people moved around a lot more than we give them credit for exactly like i i listened to by the time this show goes out it won't be recent but the Radio 4 long running uh, in our time series mm-hmm. mentioned the I want to say he was eighth century ninth century monk Alcuin mm-hmm. who was old English by by birth and ethnicity but he spent a, most of his career in what's now Germany um, and he moved back and forth yeah. And yes, that's not a huge distance, but people kind of make it seem like for everyone, you were just static. And and I think it's probably worth saying that then, probably as now, if you were at the kind of elite level of society, you did have a lot more possibilities for movement and opportunity and travel than if you were just... You know, uh, John the, the the farmer or Mary the yeah the peasant. <laughs>
0: but even John and Mary the peasant, there's at least there's more kind of local circulation too than people think mm. there is because John and Mary the peasant might decide that actually let's place John Junior in apprenticeship and if we're uh, so that you know he could do something else perhaps and if we're going to place John Junior in apprenticeship so he can learn to be a weaver then. Well, maybe we're not going to do it in this little tiny village, we're going to do it in uh, the city.
1: Yeah. And that might be that might be York or it might be Lincoln if you're in an English context. Right. But yeah, but you'll have to you'll have to, you know, get the cart and whatever hauling animal you're using and right. and Yeah. And travel.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, because uh, yeah, I mean, so in uh, in Barcelona, which is my own research context, mm. I have tons of documents that are apprenticeship contracts and domestic service contracts that are people relocating to Barcelona from all around Catalonia.
1: Mm, yeah, like then as now. Yeah, people you go to the were, city uh, to get a job. People were 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 ambitious yeah. and and wanted to not just necessarily have the exact same existence that their parents had. I mean, there was a lot of that too, just as there is in modernity, Mm -hmm. people being happier with the way things are. But yeah, I think flattening it out and being like, oh, well, it was just this period where everyone just kind of accepted the status quo and that was fine right.
0: and that there's also of course more social mobility than people think there was during this period uh you know not that there was you know a kind of perfect social mobility but there's also not no. perfect social mobility in the 21st century at least certainly not of the united states <laughs>
1: yeah and and in and in the uk heck no um <laughs> but anyway <laughs> so i guess in terms of those popular perceptions of uh The Middle Ages being a certain way, I think the individual that we're going to be talking about in terms of the movie we're watching today probably has more to do with it, rightly or wrongly, than any other individual, I would say, in terms of the perceptions of like violence and, you know, destruction and awfulness. Mm -hmm. And probably the people he came from and is the most famous representative, probably along with the Vikings. And also probably the Crusaders get a lot of uh, credit is the wrong word, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they tend to be associated with this as as well.
0: They're so, like sadistic hyper-violence, yeah.
1: Exactly,
0: yes. And if
1: you haven't figured out who I'm talking about, the person I am talking about is Genghis, or to give him the more, like I guess, authentic pronunciation, Chinggis Khan. So yeah. yes, today we're going to be watching... Sergei bodrov senior's film mongol from 2007 but before we do that i know it's kind of like the opposite end of the continent really (laughs) uh and the opposite end of the medieval world uh, because yeah they're mostly not in europe but uh they do turn up Mm -hmm. um what can you tell us about uh, about the mongols
0: Ah, well, uh, I, I did not do too much kind of specific research to prepare, so I'm actually just going to say a couple of uh, brief things on the Mongols, which is, uh, first of all, that one of the most interesting sources that we have for the Mongols as a group during this period, and in particular for European perceptions of the Mongols, is uh, William of Rubuk, a uh, Franciscan monk who kind of goes to he's kind of not officially a political emissary, but he's kind of mm. trying to do some quasi political things and also seeing like, maybe can we convert them to Christianity? And, uh, um, it's a really interesting, uh, kind of dive into how Europeans are simultaneously constructing the Mongols as these radical others, but also mm. finding some amount of accommodation and connection with them. And, uh, finding ways to communicate with them there is Mm. and there's a lot of really interesting work that's kind of beginning to be done about the mongols as an example of this group that is uh kind of being racialized by europeans as they're sort of developing Mm. ideas about race from Mm. uh, the mongol side themselves uh, they are an interesting group in that they really were perceived as this uh, somewhat existential threat in part by Europeans, but even much more so, in fact, in the Islamic world, which faced more of the kind of brunt of Mongol conquests uh, for at least partially geographic reasons.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's later than the period we'll be dealing with in in this movie because we, we're, we're talking about... Uh, uh, Genghis Khan, but uh, yes, his uh, his successors. Uh, one of them basically wiped Baghdad virtually off the map. Yeah, and you know that's something which it feels like should be more widely widely known that mm-hmm. this you know incredible center center of culture was essentially put to the torch, and so yeah. much like people know about the Library of Alexandria being burnt down at some point i mean we don't know when exactly it was destroyed i don't think mm-hmm. but people don't really know about baghdad and like what a big deal it was and then yeah. suddenly wasn't um because of <laughs> um yeah and yes, going back folks. to what
0: i was mentioning before about these uh, that there are these kind of arabic translations of greek texts that very much goes mm. back to the Abbasids making that a priority in baghdad all the way back in the ninth century
1: yeah, um I think another another source that I've heard I haven't read I haven't read it in its entirety but I'm a big fan of um, of Dan Carlin's like hardcore history like long running podcast series and he quotes John of Plano Carpini a lot and mm-hmm. and he had <laughs> had the experience of being whisked across the Eurasian Step to take part as an observer of the Mongol kurultai, which was their process for for selecting a, a new khan. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's the source that I would love to love to read at, at one point. And also, a figure that the Europeans constructed that they kind of like fit the Mongols into is this guy that they called Prester John. Yes, uh, that I definitely wanted to bring up. I feel like you'll probably do a better job of describing who this supposed Prester John guy was. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and so it's essentially this, yeah, kind of fictional, idealized Christian king in some kind of vaguely undefined place in the East that they then sort of try to be like, well, like, maybe like this Mongol Khan, maybe he's Christian, maybe he's really Prester John, you know, or like, maybe we can like ally with Prester John, who, of course, like does not exist. And uh, there's this kind of whole narrative that develops around Prester John and his realm, there are these essentially kind of mythical semi monstrous creatures that are supposed to live in the realm of prester john there's this magical like river made out of stones that i think like stops on the sabbath or something
1: oh wow yeah yeah i didn't i didn't know that level of detail at all i just knew that he was thought to be this like christian potentate in the east who is gonna come and like smash the the nasty old muslims from the east and kind of like help out the, the the western christians and there was kind of like a grain of truth insofar as there were nestorian christians in the right. east like missions that went out very early had succeeded in in like setting up christian communities and you know gaining adherence and so christianity was there Mm-hmm. In some small degree in the east, but like really, it it seems like it was a massive project in in like European like wishful thinking.
0: Yeah, and uh, and really the the fancifulness surrounding the realm of Prester John, um, and the kind of narratives around that are really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, Umberto Eco's novel *Baudolino* actually uh, has an episode where they you know do in fact reach the realm of Prester John successfully.
1: Oh, and
0: wow. uh you know so it's really fascinating as a kind of bit of magical realism
1: mm yeah that definitely sounds sounds interesting i it's been a long time i haven't read any um umberto eco but a long time ago i saw um uh, in the name of the rose mm-hmm. so um so yeah i kind of he seems like somebody who is very interested in, in yeah. the medieval period.
0: And most people will recommend The Name of the Rose too, as like his medieval novel. I mm. like The Name of the Rose, but I actually like Battlely better. Okay. And it's a uh, framed a ra- the kind of frame story is uh, that it's um this individual who is basically like it's basically like the kind of frame of the story is the uh, 1204 crusader let's just conquer constantinople because why the hell not because
1: <laughs> we're there and, and we don't really like the eastern orthodox christians very much because right. they kind of like they call us barbarians and we're gonna prove them wrong by <laughs> destroying their city right oh wait uh, well we didn't exactly prove them wrong but uh, i guess we've got their city now so what are they gonna do right
0: And that also, by the Uh... way, is one of the things that's interesting is that on the one hand, there is a lot of respect for Genghis Khan and... uh like basically just by virtue of the fact that like he was very successful Mm. but at the same time there's also this like very intense construction of him and the mongols as barbarians and they never quite get subjected to these efforts to fit them into these uh kind of chivalric western models as you see with a number of illustrious muslim figures like saladin
1: i was gonna say yeah saladin definitely gets Gets a certain amount of respect as being like he's a, he's a villain, but he's a worthy opponent. You know, there's yeah. kind of like night, and there's all the stuff about like the relationship between Richard the you know, aka the Lionheart, yeah. and <laughs> and Saladin having this kind of like. uh very idealized, you are a worthy opponent, sir, kind of relationship. So whereas the Mongols are, yeah, kind of outside of that. But.
0: Right. And there are even stories that claim that Saladin converted to Christianity secretly.
1: Yeah, that that seems like pretty wishful thinking. <laughs> oh, oh, very, very
0: much uh, wishful thinking and an attempt to kind of domesticate him in the same way as this, um, as these kind of chivalric uh, depictions of him are doing already, I would say. But it's interesting that the Mongols, while there are very serious efforts to try to convert them to Christianity, they are not quite subjected to that domestication process. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Um, that they instead are very much like constructed as and emphasized as barbaric.
1: Yeah, although I mean, some of their some of their conduct in, in well, as we've already touched on in in the Middle East, but also in in Russia and in Hungary, mm-hmm. just kind of really does not lend itself to domestication because they right. they were you know without wishing to sound mean spirited like vicious bastards. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: No, they were, they were quite brutal. Uh, You know, the the one thing that I would say is that, I mean, so are the Crusaders, if you read certain narratives.
1: Well, yes, like the, uh, the capture of Jerusalem is like horrific. And that's, that's not an isolated incident, but it's probably like, the most, the most famous. But yeah, it is interesting that people weren't able to see necessarily like, oh, yeah, we do this too. So they're not in a they don't belong in a kind of like their own special category but yeah yeah.
0: um and i think the fact that they they were uh semi-nomadic and i think that that perception of them as not having a, a kind of settled civilization in the same way as either western as either as either europeans or or muslims I think that is part of the reason that they were perceived as being very kind of fundamentally different.
1: Yes, yeah, it made made them very easy to to other. Yes. Um yeah, but I think, you know, that that did uh, that did very much work work both ways like yeah. some of some of the uh stuff that I've heard in terms of like Genghis Khan wiping out whole cities was that was that he and the Mongols in general like perceived sedentary like settled societies as being like lesser than them and therefore right. it was okay to kind of like slaughter them en masse at least that's kind of like one explanation of it
0: right yeah um, i mean everybody every everybody you know participates in this othering of uh, different groups of people right and so the, the yes. mongols are certainly as as far as i can tell guilty of that as well
1: yeah yeah it's uh it's the whole it's much easier to be Terrible to people if you kind of like recategorize them as something less than yourself.
0: Yes. Also, their their drink of choice, which I know from William of oh. account, is a, a fermented milk beverage.
1: Yes, like horse milk. I I'm, I I'm yes. remember what I. I've I've forgotten what the Mongol word is, but um, I think it's kumis in Turkish. Or in I I'll the have Turkic to double check. Language. I'll double
0: check before yeah. uh before our next uh after after you watch the movie, two. I'll double check.
1: Yeah,
0: but yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's uh it's something. Yeah, I can't remember the word either, but it sounds utterly disgusting. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. Well, uh, the, yeah. the other thing I think they they did is like if they were really. Struggling for food, which you know, given their lifestyle, which we will definitely see in this film because it's a rewatch for me, uh, like one thing that they would do is I think they would m- mix uh horse blood into into this milk to kind of like I was going to say beef it up, but clearly that's the wrong word, <laughs> equine it up. Horse I don't it up? Know. Uh, horse it up, yeah, uh, just to kind of give it a bit more kick. But that does not sound very appealing to me.
0: Um, <laughs> This is one of the things. There are at least there are accounts, although I'm not sure that it's entirely sure quite how true they are. But there are accounts that, like on the road while riding, they would also like, basically, like suck the blood of their horses mm. um, as a yeah. like on the go snack.
1: Yeah, that that feels like that would be that would be tricky to do on the go and not like make a mess everywhere. Right. On the other hand, they were pretty incredible in terms of like you know shooting arrows from horseback so maybe i'm underestimating them yeah it it seems like it seems like that's much more likely that they would do that when things are stationary because then you don't have like like veins right uh, spurting blood everywhere (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry that's a kind of violent and gross image but uh, we may be getting that some of the some of the film as i said it's a rewatch for me i originally saw it when it was in the cinema which was quite an experience and i saw it maybe a I don't know, six or seven years afterwards, but it's actually quite a long time since, since I've seen it. So I don't have strong recollections beyond, like, my goodness, he had a tough life mm-hmm. uh, prior to becoming the great Khan, and maybe that's why he has a, such a chip on his shoulder, to put it mildly. <laughs> but, yeah, I remember it being, like, very visually beautiful and spending mm-hmm. quite a lot of time on, like, the shamanistic religion mm. that they practised. But other than that... I don't have like very strong recollections. Before we get into it, it's probably worth saying a little bit about the uh, the director. Um mm-hmm. he's uh, Sergei Bodrov Senior and this this film was like a joint Kazakhstan, Russian and German production and it was it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Picture for the 2008 Oscars. And this was this, this director's second nomination. He'd made a film in the 90s called Prisoner of the Mountains is how it's translated into, into English that mm-hmm. uh, focuses on some Russian soldiers in the Caucasus. It's, uh, the Russian title is Kavkarsky uh, Plennik, which is like a title that both Tolstoy and Pushkin used mm-hmm. and has come up in this podcast because we had uh, the the Plennik, to give it a very... Uh, literal translation the female prisoner of the of the caucasus that's so that's a title that the uh, russians return to again and again that was a very different film as a comedy but um but yes probably won't get to that one for a while so if you want to hear more about that particular film then i would recommend there. there is this um podcast it's in english but it's done by a couple of finnish guys yeah. uh so and that's called the flick lab so if you want to hear an episode on that film i would recommend going and paying that a visit so this guy he's he's critically acclaimed and he also has the distinction of being the father of kind of like like a sort of i guess you would say 90s Russian James Dean type figure. Uh, This guy called... Well, I've been calling the director Sergei Bodrov Sr. So his son is is, is Sergei Bodrov Jr. And uh, yeah, he was in another film we covered earlier called Brother uh, where he plays... Kind of like, I don't know, slightly like baby-faced Clint Eastwood kind of character, (laughs) if you can imagine such a thing, because like baby-faced is one adjective you generally wouldn't use with with Clint. But in terms of the way he comports himself, you might say he's kind of Clint Eastwood. Hmm ish but i think that's probably oversimplifying but uh but yeah so this this uh junior he's he's kind of iconic for that role but he was also uh, one of the two leads in his father's film which we were just talking about the prisoner of the mountains mm. but he tragically died in an avalanche in, oh, wow. in the caucasus yeah in the in the early 2000s when he was uh, making a film himself like it was wow absolutely horrific like he and the film crew just like disappeared into a ravine essentially yeah it's awful. it's it's incredible i don't think i could be wrong about this but i don't think they were ever found it's just like yeah
0: they just assume that they they just they're they're probably dead yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah. and they're they're buried somewhere in the in the caucasus mountains so so yeah this this director has you know seen incredible tragedy tragedy in his personal life um don't know whether that reflects on the film at all. It's kind of very, very different. But, um, uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, so it's kind of like some interesting uh, back story to uh, to this film. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so uh, what we' what we're gonna do to bring in the film is we're going to speak a little bit of uh, of Russian. I, I know uh, Sarah that you're a linguist, so <laughs> hopefully this won't be <laughs> won't be too hard. No so, Russian,
0: but uh we'll have to give it a shot.
1: Yeah. So the word that we say is payekeli. <laughs> Payechili. Excellent. And that means off we go, or we're off. So three, two, one, And we're back. Sarah and I have just watched Mongol, The Rise of Genghis Khan, a.k.a. Mongol, a.k.a. Uh, Mongol, the rise to power of
0: <laughs> Genghis
1: Khan, or Genghis Khan, or Chinggis Khan, however you are pronouncing his uh, his title rather than his actual name, which we'll get on to. Right. So the usual spoiler warning, if you haven't seen the film yet, we're going to be just about to get into the plot. So spoiler warning, spoiler warning, spoiler warning. And yeah, over to you, Sarah. What happens in mongol
0: so it begins with the, with him actually as a child i hadn't expected when i first started to watch it how I, despite the fact that the subtitle was the rise to power i hadn't expected basically how far back it would go and mm. actually also how much of it is really centered on his relationship with his wife and so that's essentially how it begins is that he's traveling with his father to go and look for a bride I think he's nine and she's 10.
1: Yes, they make a point of saying she's like a whole year older than him. Yeah,
0: it's it's very cute. It's like a very like thing that kids say that he says, I'm oh, nine. Yeah. And she's like, I'm a <laughs> whole year older.
1: Yeah, because when you are that age, and it is, you know, admittedly, a much bigger chunk right. of your life uh, right. <laughs> as yeah, a whole. But that, was,
0: that was very cute.
1: Oh, and those those two child actors are just the cutest they kids. They are
0: adorable. But
1: yeah, <laughs> it's it's hard to believe that one of them is going to grow up to be like, <laughs> I'm oversimplifying clearly, but like an infamous butcher. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Though you wouldn't guess that based on this movie, but uh, we'll we'll get there.
1: <laughs> we will. Yes, I'm sure. But yes. Yeah, so yeah, we spend probably what, like 15, 20 minutes with Temujin, who's who's Genghis Khan's actual given name rather than his title
0: yeah and he he basically uh tricks his father his uh father wants him to go and marry someone from this other clan to form an alliance essentially but mm. he has uh met this uh this girl borta and has decided that he wants to marry her and basically says like to his father like oh we're gonna practice on this tribe and <laughs> then like chooses her and like then like once he essentially like makes the agreement it's like he, you know he can't get around it like i guess that's just how it works like once he he says like yeah you can choose your bride once he chooses he's chosen and that's it
1: yeah and the father is kind of like look temujin you put me in a quite a difficult position here and then later he's kind of like on the other hand you know boy, a, a child should choose who who they're going to to marry so i'm annoyed with you but you kind of did good
0: yeah it's like he he has respect for him which Mm, it's nice it's we have a nice dad which of course in any movie that takes place in the pre-modern era means that he's going to die (laughs) (laughs) like this is a thing that i have noticed in a lot of pre-modern movies is that like the track record for parents and (laughs) like is like very low and like every time you have like a dad have like a nice bonding moment with his son it's like dad's gonna die so yeah
1: it's kind of like the war movie equivalent trope of like the guy who gets out the photo of his sweetheart back home it's like Mm -hmm. he is catching a bullet as soon as the fighting gets started yeah
0: (laughs) yeah so they're interacting with this other clan i guess and uh, they there's like a symbolic uh kind of ritual thing where uh you're supposed to like exchange and like drink milk together i'm not sure if it's the regular milk or if it's the uh, the comos the fermented milk
1: i would suspect the latter but but this does not go well
0: <laughs> no there's like some really ominous music right after he starts drinking and then like he's clearly having some chest pains and uh yeah yeah dad's dad's gotten poisoned dad's dead
1: <laughs> yeah well and dad also knows that there's the possibility that this can happen right? Mm-hmm. Like, because one of his like right hand hand men goes you know give it to a servant first and the dad is like no no i have to respect the customs because that's what you do because i'm a tough guy essentially it's also
0: it's a real <laughs> ned stark move
1: mm, yes the like yes.
0: ethics <laughs> valued over like basic personal safety
1: yeah he's a ned stark With a drinking problem, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And like Ned Stark, he makes it about an eighth of the movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so since he's dead, that I guess just means that all bets are off now in terms of, I don't know, social norms, essentially?
1: (laughs) uh, Yeah, sort of, like, because Yesuge is a Khan. Right. And normally, a son of the Khan, it would get the job of being the successor but yeah as you say all bets are off because (laughs) uh, temujin is a long way from being an adult
0: yeah and that's of course you know a big problem in honestly pretty much all societies with some kind of like Mm. hereditary rulership is that a child is not necessarily able to actually take over and be a ruler and you know some kind of like civil war or usurpation is a pretty good possibility
1: yeah well and and in this case it basically just means all of the warriors who hitherto had been under Yesuge basically are like uh well we're not gonna stick with his family we're gonna find a khan to you know to be in their band because a nine-year-old can't be a khan right <laughs> essentially
0: yeah and uh, they actually even consider the possibility of a uh, killing the young temujin because you know he's mm. going to grow up and avenge his father in theory and mm. his mom basically like curses them all if they do and yeah. uh, it's only with that that i think he said something along the lines of uh, basically like we have to keep the customs even when we don't want to
1: yes this is a He's not in the important, like, trio, but he's kind of like the fourth most important character, I would say. Uh, He's called Targutai, and yeah, he's basically like, well, I would kill Temujin, but he's still a child, and Mongols don't kill children, so I'll just have to wait until he's you know technically not a child anymore and then he's totally dead but
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) especially because like you you get the pretty clear sense that it's like he's like what nine now and it's like so probably when he's like what 13 like then he's fair game
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i i love how that there's like a specific literal benchmark it's right uh, we can get into this later it's once he is taller than the height of a wagon wheel he counts as an yeah. adult and therefore right. can be can be like done away with yeah
0: <laughs> yeah which is still like probably pretty young uh yeah yeah but you know but you know for our temper temogen of us be ni- nice to like be nine years old and already have your career path set which is murdering a dude e- e- well, yeah. So he, I guess he, he escapes, right?
1: Yeah, he basically runs off into the kind of, into the wild. Yeah,
0: and he comes across and is helped by another kid, Jam- Jamuka? Yes. And so he meets Jamuka and his brother, who whose name I have not, I do not remember.
1: No, I don't remember either, but they bond.
0: Yes, and uh, even uh, have a kind of like ritual, like acknowledging each other as brothers, him and Jamuka, that... Um, which, uh, the way you do this, by the way, is that you drink more of this milk, but you put some of it- but you put each other's blood in it?
1: Yep. Uh, so they- so they are now brothers mm-hmm. for life, uh, which is gonna come up. Yes.
0: And there's also a lot of discussion, essentially, about their future paths. Uh, Jamuka is very con- convinced that he is going to be the next Khan, and that, uh, uh, Temujin's going to be his second-in-command. We'll see how that goes. hmm And also- uh, Temujin starts talking about the fact that, like, oh no, I have to kill this guy, and also that he needs to go and get his bride. That he still like remembers this girl that and like wants to marry her.
1: Yes, yeah, Jem'Hah is <sighs> right. Fine, I don't see why you're making all this deal about a girl. Like he literally says, a horse is more important than a bride. Right? I think yes. He
0: says. <laughs> yeah you you need a horse more than a woman. <laughs> yeah so Ugh,
1: we will we will return to this subject oh yeah
0: so uh, temujin uh eventually ends up uh, he does get kind of re he gets kind of like retaken or, or no he gets caught stealing a horse right
1: i think so yeah he's basically captured by target yeah but he is still not t- tall enough uh, to get his head lopped off so he's gonna live for a little bit longer
0: So they put him in basically the stocks.
1: Yes, it's like movable stocks.
0: Yeah, as a way to, I guess, like keep him from like going anywhere. And yeah, fun fact, apparently you can use the movable stocks to murder a dude.
1: Yes, as we discover later.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so like there's a lot of like scenes of him like in the stocks and he's like in the rain. And then like there's like a guy who like comes up to him and he like beats him to death by like headbanging the stocks into him essentially
1: yeah i i'm trying to remember uh because there's there's a little bit where he he's out of the stocks for a little bit as a kid but then i think he's re, he's recaptured um yeah as an adult and once again he's he's in the stocks but they they do the classic villain no-no of not dispatching our hero straight away um and and then comes the uh aforementioned stocks murder (laughs)
0: Uh uh-huh yeah so uh he he escapes then by virtue of having murdered this dude uh there's also is this where he first meets the old guy
1: is this the old guy who feeds him
0: i think so and i think that's Um. who lets him out too right um or like helps him get out of this who helps him get out of the stocks
1: it's actually a younger guy who actually like once he's run away kind of like sees him in the stocks and lets him out and and uh, Temujin basically says thank you for helping me i owe you one but yeah that's that's a younger okay. guy i think um but yes there are a lot of characters in this film
0: yes and so he then goes to get his bride and like it's uh, like i find this weirdly charming Although I, there, like, there's a lot happening in terms of, like, the choices that are made surrounding Temujin's attitude toward women and other characters' attitude toward women. But, like, for now, I'll just say, like, it's, like, weirdly heartwarming that he's like, yeah, no, I gotta, like, go back and get my girlfriend. Yes, And uh, goes back uh, to this like village that he was in ages ago.
1: And they are pleasantly surprised because they're like, oh, you actually remembered. We didn't expect that.
0: Right. Well, so I actually was wondering if they were like not so pleasantly surprised if they were like, oh, Mm. like this seemed like a better marriage back when your dad was the con
1: yes no i i stand corrected this is less good than it looked at the time
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah, and because the father's even like i I don't know if she still wants to marry you maybe she doesn't and then she comes out and she's like (laughs) (laughs) like great you came back
1: yeah, yeah, and her father is like, yeah, okay, I guess, I guess she still wants to marry you, so you know, we should go through with that, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and I found this really interesting in that there really seems to be this emphasis on like marriage as being a matter of choice.
1: Mm, yes, in a way that you often don't associate with pre-modern societies,
0: right? And is not what i would get necessarily from reading uh so one of the things that i mentioned before was uh william of rubrook who's a franciscan friar is uh it's a bit after this it's uh the great khan uh, munka which is uh maybe king khan's grandson
1: i think you're right i think he was the successor to ogadai who was one of uh, temujin's sons yes yeah
0: and so he has this kind of description of what their life is like and in describing their marriages, it seems much uh, less emphasizing the wife's choice. Hmm, yes. Uh, and it yeah. like describes like that the only way you can have me. a wife there is to purchase her. And it's kind of like, well,
1: in, in, in Europe it was, it was pretty arranged mostly. Um. Oh, right,
0: yeah. I mean, it's like, I, I will say like this, the lack of choice in marriage is very much also something that you would 100% see in European society. Um,
1: Yeah. So a a European chronicler or or writer sounding slightly judgmental about other people's marriage practices is kind of like, well, you guys are not really ones to talk.
0: Right. Although it's also fun because the thing that he's actually most judgy about is that they don't have the same rules about like who you can marry that Catholics do and so i think he says like observe the first and second degree of consanguinity but none of affinity for they can have two sisters at the same time or in succession so like that's what he's really upset about is that like i don't care that you can like buy that you like just buy your wife what i think is like actually a problem is that like you can sleep with a woman after you slept with like you can marry a woman if you slept with her sister
1: yeah i can see why you would find that icky but yeah at the same time it's kind of like yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah, so I will say, like, that's definitely, like, what he cares more about. But, uh, yeah, he does also, like, refer to this odd practice of essentially a, like, what he presents as this, like, faux kidnapping And claims that when somebody makes a contract of someone else to take his daughter, the girl's father holds a banquet and she flees to her relatives to lie in hiding. Then the father says, behold, my daughter is yours. Take her wherever you may find her at this. The man searches for her with his friends until he discovers her. And he is required to take her by force and carry her off with a semblance of violence to his own home. It's not clear if the bride has any say in anything, but you know, she doesn't anywhere in the 13th century, which is, uh, when this particular account is from and, uh, but the father is like very much on board. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, which that does bring us to an important plot point though. Um, yes. I don't know whether we're doing it in, in totally the right order, but, uh, I don't think it matters.
0: Yeah. So, so actually I will, I do just want to note before we get into what you're referring to that. Yeah. So he brings her back to his mother, and this movie mm. technically passes the Bechdel test, which I was pleasantly surprised by. Yeah, there's essentially one relatively brief scene between the between Berta and uh, Timagen's mother, whose name I do not recall. I think it's
1: Olen or Holen. Okay,
0: so yeah, but she does have a name, and so there is a scene between the two of them. Where basically they just like talk kind of about like getting to know each other, and uh, um, one's like, I like you, like, you seem strong. And then the like, like me. Yeah, like exactly. And then like it, um to like gives her a code and like she refers to it as her dowry, but then she's like, and like this is for you. And it's it's like a nice conversation where obviously like the background of them having a relationship with each other is through Timogen, but like that's not what they talk about at all.
1: No. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So like they never You're mention right. his name or like explicitly talk about him in this context. Like it's really just like a short conversation where they're kind of getting to know each other.
1: Yeah. And of course, this film also passes the less well-known but equally important if Ifdecker test. Yes,
0: uh, the uh, the lowest possible bar that you have to have <laughs> at least one named woman who doesn't die. And uh, Borta at least definitely makes it to the end of the movie.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, so then Borta gets kidnapped because uh, there's this dude who is angry because uh, Temujin's mother used to be his wife, and then his father stole her. And so since everything is really about men and their relationship to each other, and all of that is just enacted on the bodies of women, he is going to kidnap Temujin's wife as revenge against his dead father.
1: Yes, and this is the Merkits who will be important for this bit of the film.
0: Yes, yes. So uh, they go after her. So at this point, I actually paused and Googled to see if this was real because I didn't like it. Like, I don't like a necessary inclusion of like women being kidnapped and presumably raped.
1: Very understandable.
0: But I will say that this is a historical event that uh, his wife was really kidnapped in a context you know fairly similar to this
1: yes like this is a bit that the writers took from the sources rather than something they made up they do make up quite a bit but this is this is not something that we can just say they went oh well it's a medieval movie so hey we can have kidnap and rape
0: right exactly so my initial reaction was like oh god are you kidding me but Mm. given that it's a historical event it was a reasonable inclusion. She essentially sacrifices herself so that he can get away.
1: Yes. Now, this is this is the thing that, as far as I can tell, is is a change. Yeah. But I will say more about that later, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. I look forward to discussing it later because I have sort of mixed feelings about it as a choice. So uh, Temujin then wants to get her back. He goes to ask Temuka for help on this who tells him that Mongols don't make war over a woman, and suggests instead basically that, like, don't worry about her, I can give give you two new wives, because women are interchangeable.
1: Apparently if you're Jemaka, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, yeah, this is one of those moments, and we'll we'll talk about this more later, I guess, but where you very much kind of get into the comparison between the two men's attitudes toward women.
1: Oh, yes. Yes.
0: But Timujin genuinely likes his wife and wants to get her back. They do however agree that they're going to wait until it's described as next year to get her back, because I guess that's, like, a better time to have a war.
1: Yeah, according to Jemukha, right. and he's calling the shots, because he's the guy who has a war band. Right,
0: yeah, like, Temujin and his, like, four friends are not getting anywhere, so. Uh, yeah, to which my response is definitely, like, Christ, we're gonna, like, leave her to be, like, raped for, like, a year? <laughs> great. Just great.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so then the Murkits.
0: Yeah, we've got, I guess, our... F- first real kind of like showpiece bloody battle.
1: Yeah, and it's it's about 45 minutes into a 2-hour film yeah. before we get like serious bloodletting. Yeah. <laughs> so uh your your erstwhile co-host I suspect would be a little bit uh, uh, disappointed.
0: <laughs> right, definitely not enough swords in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so this is our kind of first uh, big battle. I will say also just a quick like note that I want to make about this scene, but actually the battles in general, is that there's much more of an emphasis on the fact that there's actually strategy than you yes, often see in yeah. medieval films where the emphasis is exclusively on the brutality aspect.
1: Yes, yeah. Which I think if you're making a film about Genghis Khan, I think that's an important thing to include.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That he... I mean, that the point of him is like he did not just take over a portion, a significant portion of the known world by virtue of, like, having a lot of people or, like you know, not that he's not a mass murderer, but, like, it's not just that he's a mass murderer, it's that he's a good military strategist.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the other reason that I really appreciated that, and-, and this is something we can kind of talk more about later, too, potentially, is that it also given what we were talking about about the western tendency often to present uh, mongols as these kind of quintessential barbarians oh yeah i think emphasizing this like military strategy aspect is uh, really valuable
1: yeah definitely well and and to be fair it's not just the it's not just the west who would talk about them as barbarians the uh, the mongols contemporaries uh, down in china were very much like Oh, oh no, you guys up there who are nomads, you're barbarians. Like, I don't know what the Chinese word is, but it's basically a, a, the, the equivalent word for barbarian. And it's and they really look down their nose on, on nomads.
0: Yeah, and they were, yes, they were perceived that way by uh, the Chinese. They were perceived that way by Muslims. Uh, and uh, that was kind of very much the prevailing opinion of them. Uh, but so I, so I think it is really valuable to emphasize that like they have like, culture and strategy yeah so he they have this battle in the middle of the battle you know temujin's main goal is obviously to get his wife back he takes one of the masks that the um what are they called the Merkins?
1: the Merkits. Merkits,
0: yes that the the mercits
1: yes d- definitely good that they're not called the Merkits. <laughs>
0: like they can't be called the Merkins. that can't be right <laughs>
1: yeah that would that would imply a different kind of uh yes right. <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> yes the markets uh they have these masks that they're wearing in battle he takes one of the masks in order to be able to sneak into the village more easily uh, or, or like mm-hmm. their encampment and uh, is able to get his wife back she is very visibly pregnant i was so afraid that he was gonna like be mad at her about it and he's not he's like cool this is my like here's my wife She's got my son.
1: Yeah, yeah. He he basically adopts his son in the womb, yeah. even though it's obviously it's very clear from context that he he is he is not the father. But he yeah. he's very pragmatic about it. It's like, well, you know, what was she supposed to do?
0: Yeah, and so I looked this up actually uh, historically. Mm. The amount of time that she's in prison is like eight months, and I think based on the timing. It could have been either way.
1: Yes, the movie implies that it's possibly longer, but I think, I think in terms of history, there was always enough ambiguity that it was hard to know whether Jokey, who was this son grows up to be, uh, was Temujin's uh, kid or. Or, or not, But, you know, if your leader is is Genghis Khan, you're probably not yeah. going to uh, make too many statements out loud about the, you know, the p- right. parentage of, of his children. Yeah. If you if you know, if you know what's good for you. Yeah. Um, and
0: I really appreciated like so first of all, in the movie, he basically just is like, yep, this is my kid. I'm not going to worry about it. Like this is my wife's kid. This is my kid. I'm never going to question it. And that actually mm. seems to hold up historically, as far as I could tell from some pretty brief research on his side. Although that son is ultimately not the one who becomes his kind of like primary air and that seems to have been because of other people's doubt that i don't think any of them had the nerve to voice until after he died
1: yeah but i think he himself it seems the way it's been portrayed in, in things i've listened to and read was that he was pragmatic and went you know i should probably choose somebody that people don't have doubts about because in some ways it would be unfair to jokey to make him my heir yeah and then when i'm not around for people to then just all come out of the woodwork and go well you're not the heir
0: yeah but it's it's a really interesting dynamic and honestly like Mm. very nice especially like given the comparison in a lot of like Western European context where there's a huge amount of anxiety about this sort of thing. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And actually just even like to have like a Jewish example, there's essentially like a legal presumption if a Jewish woman is in, is held in captivity that she has been raped. And by virtue of that, there's like this whole legal thing about what her status is. And what it essentially then ends up boiling down to is that if her husband is a Kohen, if he's like of like the like priestly lineage, then he essentially has to like divorce her and never remarry her. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, so like given that context in a lot of like Western societies at this time, like it's really interesting that you know, in this film and historically, that he seems to have been, like, very chill about this.
1: Yeah, he's he's obviously, like, he is really pissed off that his wife got kidnapped, but yeah. he, he is not blaming her for right. the fact that she was put in a position where she had to do things she didn't want to.
0: Right, he never for a second even considers blaming her, and he also never for a second as far as we can tell considers like not accepting the child fully as his own
1: yeah he basically he doesn't blame the kid for the circumstances under which he was conceived which yeah i mean again there's there's plenty of nasty things you can say about the real historical figure but this seems to be something that he deserves a little bit of like okay you weren't terrible all of the time right
0: yeah like you know At least you were, like, pretty nice to your family as these things go. (laughs) Like, that's something. Yeah. So, and also, by the way, she uh, murdered the dude who was presumably raping her. Yeah. Yeah. So, good for her.
1: Um, I mean, I'm not quite sure what that guy is is doing not being out on the battlefield, but... My
0: assumption is that it was, like, he's supposed to guard her because they assumed she would try to escape. Probably, yeah, yeah. Um...
1: But yeah, so he dies. Um,
0: Good hashtag. Let him die.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I don't think that's going to be the first. <laughs> oh no.
0: So uh, they all get together and have a party because they murdered a bunch of people. So
1: yep. fun times.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. We we learned that drunk singing is a constant in all cultures. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, a universal male bonding
0: ritual. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's this, like, very, like, intense, like, humming that happens.
1: Yes. (laughs) Which we will not simulate, because I suspect it's culturally... (laughs) Yeah. uh, Culturally insensitive.
0: Yes. And, uh... It's also like very much like you have the kind of interesting like homo social bonding aspect in that like at the end of the night Temujin like cuddles up with his with Jamuka like instead of his wife that he's just rescued.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, like they they sleep under the same blanket, which in the John Mann I think it's the it's called the Mongol Empire. He mentions as a thing that was done. Like mm-hmm. this isn't something that the movie makers like randomly made up. This is. I think.
0: Yeah. And I mean, this is also something that I don't think would have been out of the ordinary in a Western European context either. I mean, this is, there's a lot of obviously conversations about like toxic masculinity, and it's assumed to be something old. And obviously some parts of it are, mm. but specifically the toxic masculinity aspect of like, not having like physical and emotional intimacy between men, because like, that's quote, like, you know, gay. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. very much not a pre-modern thing uh, in any culture, really, that I know of. Actually, and in the Western European context in particular, like there's a lot of like men kissing each other and like men like who are good friends sharing a bed, and that's presented as like a thing that very good male friends do.
1: Yeah, like being able to hold hands without without it being like quote unquote weird, or... right? Yeah, yeah, which yeah. today
0: is like something that's perfectly normal for women but when Mm. like men like if like male friends like hugged or kissed too much or like held hands then like people would assume that they were gay and it's like an interesting uh change in norms
1: yes definitely although Borta is not super happy about (laughs) about no which is
0: fair because she just like got kidnapped and has been being repeatedly raped for a year i feel like she should expect her husband to pay attention to her
1: yes (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. This isn't portrayed in a way of her just being like a jealous woman. like
0: Right. And also at this point, I would say in addition, there's already this kind of implication of uh, Borta as having a somewhat interesting role as being a bit of a like power behind the throne, really instigating it him becoming a leader
1: yes definitely encouraging those tendencies so i think the
0: subtle way that she puts it is something like you can't cook two sheep's heads in the same pot
1: yes i don't know whether that's a genuine like mongol proverb but i really liked it i really liked it as a kind of like an example of a kind of like a colloquial saying
0: yeah i don't know if that is a colloquial saying but i do want to note that it does emphasize that uh, in william of Rubruck that they do as far as i can tell it really seems like eat pretty much everything um in terms of like <laughs> that they that they would eat the sheep's head basically and it actually notes that with the meat of a single sheep they feed 50 or 100 men Hmm. which is impressive. They they make that sheep go far.
1: I'm not sure I want to think too hard about that.
0: <laughs> no, I'm not quite sure I do either, but uh, there's also a lot <laughs> about, like, that they make, like, horse sausage, which which uh, William of Rubo is, like, it's actually even better than the pork. Uh,
1: yes, that is that is definitely a... I find interesting that British and Americans are really, like, ugh, eating horses. That's gross. I mean... I, I get a lot of that is just that like horses are kind of like in the the sort of like kind of animal you, you can be friends with and therefore you probably shouldn't eat. I think that seems to be where our taboo comes from. But
0: Yeah and it's also like I have never personally really interacted with a horse and so I can say I probably would eat horse and uh, I actually... No, I didn't. I uh, there there's a place in Spain actually that I was at that uh had horse chorizo, but I didn't actually end up getting any because it was like a big plate and I actually couldn't convince anyone else to eat horse chorizo with me.
1: <laughs> That's fair.
0: <laughs> but I would have tried it because, as I said, I I don't have personal interactions with horses, but I would never try dog or cat because. I have those.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, w- that would feel weird. Yeah.
0: So Temujin <laughs> takes off in the middle of the night and also poaches some of Jemuka's dudes. Well, I mean,
1: you say that, but there's kind of an ambiguity about whether he's poaching them yes. or whether they...
0: <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, so there's a couple of guys who leave with him. And uh, so essentially it's, and uh, there's a big emphasis when Jemuka and his brother follow them to figure out what's happened with that is that, first of all, uh, Mongols can change their masters whenever they want to. Like, they can voluntarily decide, I'd rather follow this dude than this dude.
1: Yes, and Jammacha kind of acknowledges that, but at the same time is still super pissed off about it.
0: Yeah, so he's very not happy. The way they essentially try to get around it is that they're like, okay, well, the dude's fine, but their horses, though, are really our horses. And they kind of send people to steal the horses and then one of them ends up then killing Jamuka's brother in the context of like, you know, assuming he's a horse thief. And so this means basically that things are about to get way less chill.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, the, the the brother relationship between Temujin and Jamuka is about to be stretched to the breaking point.
0: Yes. So Targatai comes back we'd forgotten who that is and uh but he comes to make an alliance with jamuka who clearly has exactly zero respect for him i think he at some point says there are two strong mongols around here it's me and it's temujin it isn't you then as a further like display of being badass we get to see jamuka's like power shave with a sword oh yeah (laughs) yes and like yeah man like shaving your own head with a sword is like that's pretty badass i gotta admit
1: yes yeah um, something
0: we'll all try now that we're in quarantine
1: (laughs) you're welcome to I (laughs) i don't think i will but but yes yeah um Piece of work, though, he is. Jemaha has has some swagger and has some charisma and is not afraid to give himself a, <laughs> a shave with a really sharp sword.
0: Yeah, which is, yeah, it's it, it's very badass. Yeah. So they go after Temujin and his people, who then comes to the uh, the situation where basically they, it seems that basically they can like have a pitched battle that they probably don't have a great chance in.
1: To put it mildly.
0: Right. Um, But by doing so, they can help their families uh, escape, or they can basically ditch all the women and children and take the fuck off.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Borta says, look, if you dudes run we understand this is what all mongols do right. so we won't take it personally we kind of know that this is par for the course
0: right but he refuses uh, so again it's like literally like we've got like the husband and father of the year award <laughs> <presented>. <laughs> yeah. he's like no i am the only man who loves my family <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah, look, Genghis Khan, he's just being willfully misunderstood. He was just a sensitive guy who loved his it's wife, just, okay? He's just a
0: family man.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> a very cunning, very badass family man. Uh-huh.
0: It's just like, it's so weird how, like, that, like, this is the emphasis. is just like, yeah, he's just a nice guy who really likes his wife and kid.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we have those two options. And then there's a third option, because... Semujin likes to think outside the box.
0: Right. So he sends off the families with like a couple of people to protect them. And then like sets up this weird like barricade.
1: Yes, yeah, made of the wagons. Yeah.
0: And so essentially it's he's able to basically like put them in the situation where they're almost having like mini siege warfare.
1: <laughs> they still lose. Yeah, they still <laughs> lose,
0: but like it's a it's a good tactic.
1: Yeah. And it seems initially like Temujin is the only person taken alive, but later on you find out that someone else has survived as well, I think? Yeah. But I was a little unclear about this.
0: Yes. Yeah, so Jamukha basically, like, takes him and at least... There's at least one other captive, I think, who, like, he takes as a slave. And uh, because, like, then they're, like, slave buddies together. Um, And I guess they get, like, sold to some other car... Like, a, like, slaving caravan.
1: Yes, because... Uh, surprisingly, Jemacher, nasty piece of work though he is, he can't quite bring himself to do what Targatai wants to do which is yeah lock temujin's head clean off he's like no i can't kill my brother i'm just gonna sell him into slavery
0: so yeah so he's uh sold into slavery and so he's got this one friend who he's basically trying to help out who's like not not doing great and he collapses and in the context of basically trying to like protect him uh temujin actually then like kills one of the caravan guards yeah
1: but again for some reason, Temujin isn't killed for this. He's just <laughs> he's just whipped and beaten a bit, and then taken to the nearest settlement.
0: And I love this. His price goes up.
1: Yeah, because he's a badass,
0: right? <laughs> yeah. It's like so. It's like he's now. I think like so. They go to the uh, the Tungut Kingdom. And, uh, essentially, like, and so, like, they're, like, selling slaves, and they're, like, ah, eh, most of them is, like, one string of coins, and this one's two string of coins, and this one's five, because he, like, killed my guard.
1: <laughs> and it was my best guard as well. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that didn't particularly ring true, but was kind of funny. Right,
0: yeah, it's, like... I feel like that would, like, A, they would have just killed him, and B, I feel like that actually isn't a quality you want in a slave and should make the price go down. Yeah,
1: yeah, that, <laughs> that made no sense, but was funny.
0: It was, yes.
1: Hey, buy this guy. He's going to be really dangerous, and you're going to have to right. he's not gonna be, you can't trust him for anything.
0: <laughs> but fortunately, he manages to find the man with the most hubris in the entire world.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, this guy, he is like, he is your rich guy. Yeah. He really is. He was
0: very much like, oh, like you want to destroy us and like you think you're so badass? Of course I'm going to buy you and I'm going to like put you in a cage on display where I can, that's like has like a little sign that's like the Mongol who wanted to take over our kingdom.
1: (laughs) ha! Yeah. And at this time we have a prophetic Buddhist monk. I mean, the implication is is he's, he's Buddhist, who's basically like, uh this guy's gonna kill everyone mm. and and the rich guy's like yeah sure old man sure
0: right and i'm just watching this, I'm like why is the monk psychic <laughs> yeah
1: yes i mean i i don't know enough about buddhism to know whether there's much of a emphasis on like like prophetic foresight it's not not something i'm ever i've ever been aware of um but yeah he apparently can see that Temujin is going to turn into Chinggis Khan. Right. And that we should be super afraid of him.
0: Yes. He's so afraid of him that he just straight switches sides, which I think is hysterical.
1: Yeah. And he kind of facilitates his escape. Yeah. It's kind of like, well, if you think maybe you should, you know, help him stay. But his, his, yeah, this this monk's attitude is that like this thing is fated, so I might as well be on this, (laughs) on this guy's good side. Right. But
0: essentially, he's like, yeah, you know, like I'll help you out. Like I know this is all going to happen anyway. As long as you agree to like not destroy my monastery and keep my library going, like yeah, whatever.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And temujin is like deal.
0: I also love in the like big like moment of interreligious interaction here that. The initial suggestion that Temujin has for the plan is that the monk should kill the guard and get the key from him. And the monk's like, oh, no, my faith does not allow me to kill. And Temujin's like, oh, mine does.
1: Mine's really cool with murder. So. <laughs> yeah, mine,
0: like, mine's <laughs> fine with the murder. So he basically then ends up saying, like, all right, like, go find my wife. She'll take care of things, which, again, like, you know, I kind of like it. Like, he, he likes his wife and trusts her to get shit done.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Which she then, yeah, proceeds to live up to his expectations.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so it's actually interesting because, so, like, she doesn't even ever talk to the monk because no. he dies.
1: The monk makes an arduous journey with a token.
0: Yeah, it's this uh, raven's wishbone, which is actually which he gave her when they were children which by the yes. way Braveheart does like the same sort of thing um, between Mel Gibson and his initial girlfriend, wife that they have this like token that was initially exchanged when they were children but there is this like oh, a dried totally thistle and in that I was calling bullshit that that thing still existed 20 years later so mm, props for this movie yeah. for actually using something that could last 20 years <laughs> So, yeah, so he makes this journey, just dies, but she finds the wishbone on his body and I guess then just decides, like, I'm going to go where he's coming from.
1: Yeah, she joins the dots. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So she joins up with this caravan, basically, like, sells her body to pay for her journey.
1: Yeah, because the, the guy in charge of the caravan is basically like you don't have any money how are you going to pay for me to help you out and she's like basically she doesn't do an eye roll but there's essentially an eye roll implied of like look dude you know how this works
0: it's like you know how i'm going to pay
1: <laughs> and the implication is and because you're a pig you're going to be cool with that
0: yeah and i guess he is uh, since there there's another child that will appear yeah so uh, she arrives, she uh, quickly kind of like bribes one of the guards to get the key so that he can escape. Mm-hmm. Once again, Temujin is just so chill about his children's parentage that like now there is a daughter and uh, I guess, and he's like, oh, so what's this one's like, what's my, like, what's this like new kid's name? And she tells him and he's like, great, nice to meet you. And they're like, yeah, this is your dad. And then she's like, what about my other dad? And... <laughs> And Borch is just like, don't worry about him. This is your dad now.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the kid surprisingly takes this very much <laughs> in her stride. Right, like
0: everybody is just very chill about all of these like family dynamics.
1: Yeah, which I mean, judging by this way, the the film portrays parents and wives and, <clears throat> you know, partners being quite interchangeable just because it's whoever happens to have the upper hand militarily. Right. Maybe people were a bit more uh adaptable (laughs) you know prepared to kind of go with the flow because what's the other option
0: right there was actually another interesting uh note in terms of things about how marriage and family tends to work which is that uh basically like whoever inherits or ends up like taking over somebody's property also like gets the responsibility for that person's wives and so there's this practice that ends up developing that often a son who inherits from his father will then marry all of his father's wives with the exception of his own mother.
1: Okay. Uh, according That's... according to
0: William of Rubric at least.
1: I was going to say I imagine William of Rubric has has some feelings about that, which you know I can I can see where he's coming from. Yes,
0: he uh, <laughs> he refers to it as a shameful practice. But uh, it it does seem like there's some other sources indicating that uh, this was indeed a practice, so it's not just something that he's making up or anything like that. But uh, yeah, but so this does seem to have been something that that happened, essentially like as in part like a way of like protecting, in theory, these figures. But
1: but yeah, y- y- you feel like it's not wholly altruistic.
0: No, but. <laughs> Like it, it definitely like feels a little icky, I'll acknowledge, but... Uh,
1: yeah, <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me.
0: <laughs> no, it, it, it feels a little icky, but, you know, it's... Uh, hey, like, that happened in the Bible, too, that uh, there is a the whole episode where um, one of Jacob's sons, uh, Reuven, ends up, like, sleeping with uh, Bilhah, his concubine. Mm,
1: yeah, um, there's definitely kind of elements of... I mean, at least superficially, of this society and, like, the kind of society of the uh israelite patriarchs that that seems quite familiar
0: in in terms
1: of like in terms of multiple wives in terms of being like essentially pastoral nomads um, right
0: and it is interesting because yeah in a lot of ways like some of a lot of the things that william of rootbrook in particularly highlights as things that he thinks are bad basically about the Mongols like are actually things that like there are some pretty strong biblical parallels. Yes.
1: Yeah. Like it, it's it's not as if um, Abraham and and Jacob in particularly were, you know, um, rigorously monogamous. Oh, um,
0: no. So then we get more of Genghis Khan, the family man.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You kind of have some sweet uh, like bonding moments and uh, a very tastefully shot sex scene. Uh
0: huh. And which which include, by the way, like, that, so, you know, this is, like, pretty standard in the pre-modern world. Like, there's not that much privacy. The kids can definitely hear their parents having sex. And uh, the brother tells his youngest sister, don't worry, he's our father. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes, it yeah, it's kind of echoes of the of the Vikings uh <laughs> episode. <Right. laughs> when I was a guest on yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Privacy is is definitely a, fu- a function of uh, of of modernity and even yeah. that depends on 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 your context. I'm sure right. we'll have uh, you'd have some have some stories from <laughs> the uh from like Soviet, like, well, 1920s, 30s, and 40s of really living cheek by jowl with your neighbors. Right. And, and
0: I was going to say, you know, I mean, then, well, then also, I mean, people who are, you know, relocating from the, well, first Tsarist Russia, um, and then ending up in the United States, like, it also doesn't sound that different from, like, the 19th and 20th century tenement housing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yes. You know a lot about people's personal lives. The, oh, yeah. The, the most early 21st century, we'd kind of like go, Wow, you you put up with this? It's like, well, yes, because again, what else were you gonna do? Right. Was, <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah. Tasteful he, sex scene. Right, so yeah, tasteful sex scene and he uh, he bonds with his kids. He um I'm not a hundred percent sure what language they're supposed to be speaking because he's teaching them Mongol.
1: Yeah, I don't know what language the the Tanguts or the Western Xi or the Xisha I think, is one of the the various different names of that particular kingdom. Um, but yeah, I don't know what they would have spoken, but not Mongol, evidently.
0: Apparently, there is a language called Tangut.
1: Ah, okay.
0: Which is, I'm trying to figure out if I yeah. So it is it's it it is its own language, which I mm. think might be sort of related to Chinese, but not entire, but definitely like distinct. It's okay. just oh okay no maybe not actually it's described as in a an ancient northeastern tibeto-burman language based on my extensive wikipedia research um <laughs> so this is no, this is
1: nicely done i think i read that in the film for convenience sake they just make it be like mandarin chinese but i right. i couldn't tell you Yeah. <laughs> like,
0: yeah, I I have no language skills in this particular area, unfortunately, and so yeah, I cannot cannot say anything. But contextually, it is pretty clear that like he is teaching them words in Mongol, and so that's clearly not what they're speaking.
1: Yeah, and he he's very proud of the Mongolian language and how beautiful it sounds. Yeah. Uh, in in his in his opinion, which hey, like that's very very subjective. Uh huh.
0: Everybody thinks their own language is the most beautiful language, except for people who speak English.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you get people who wax lyrical about Shakespeare, which, fair enough.
0: <laughs> um, and he also says, by the way, that someday everyone will understand Mongol.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> o- ominous. I mean, you weren't totally right about that, but that is also... a there's some ominous subtext with that statement, right?
0: And he he presumably did certainly increase the amount of people for at least the next like couple hundred years who understood Mongol. Yeah,
1: yep, yeah, definitely incentivized learning it one right. way or another. Right?
0: You know, didn't <laughs> didn't last entirely. Uh, I don't think there are a ton of Mongol speakers today, but uh,
1: you know, no, it's 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 not on the priority list of, of things t- to learn, but. Random tidbit though, um, modern Mongolian is written in the Cyrillic alphabet oh. as a yeah, as huh. a legacy of them being in the uh, sphere of influence of the Soviet Union, basically uh-huh. because the Soviets were the big dog on the block yeah. at that point. Oh. So yeah, so the the Mongolians adopted Cyrillic, which which means I can semi I can semi like. I can sound it out and right. be probably not totally wrong because also the thing about like non Indo-European languages that adopted uh, that adopted Cyrillic because they adopted Cyrillic relatively recently as opposed to you know you know languages that took up the Latin alphabet, mm-hmm. there's a chance that those letters actually sound the way that you think they're going to sound. Right, as opposed to the situation you get with say how letters sound in English versus how they sound in say Irish, when it's kind of like right. okay, I don't see how that is let me let me be clear. I don't think there are legitimate like right or wrong uses of Latin letters. Right. And certainly certainly the English language is not in a position to preach. Oh no, not at all. <laughs> about yeah. about consistency. But generally speaking, I think the Cyrillic alphabet is they're a bit more consistent Mm -hmm. than us users of the latin alphabet but anyway i I I thought i'd mention that in passing because i'm a languages nerd yeah and
0: and actually just a fun fact uh one of the other like one of the ways things that really highlights the disparities between ways letters and sound and words are print are pronounced in different languages using the latin alphabet is Mm. a transliteration from languages in a different alphabet And so Hebrew is.
1: Oh, yeah. Don't get me started. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So, like, Hebrew is super phonetic, but then, you know, you have to transliterate Mm. it. And uh, I remember finding it so jarring the first time I came across a bunch of Catalan transliterations of Hebrew. So mm,
1: just because they make very different choices, I'm guessing. Well, yeah, but their
0: choices that totally make sense if you know how things, like the kind of pronunciations in Catalan. But they just look so weird to an English speaker. So my favorite example is an X in Catalan is a sh sound, okay. and so the holiday Rosh Hashanah, which in English is typically transliterated R O S H space H A S H A N A, is R O I X. Haxana in Catalan, which just like looks so weird. Yes, <laughs> and it and it totally makes sense. Like that is the correct transliteration for Catalan pronunciation norms. Mm, mm, but yeah. like it's a correct transliteration of the Hebrew. It just like it looks so odd to an English speaker.
1: Yeah, because you want to put a x in there,
0: right? Yeah, so you're like rocks hexana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> What? <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. I'm going to mention in passing, but seriously, don't get me started mm. about the Library of Congress's system for transliterating Russian, mm-hmm. because you genuinely get the situation where the Russian male name Semyon is transliterated as S E M E N. Good job, guys. <laughs> good fricking good frickin Somebody job. should have thought that one,
0: put that one through no (laughs) um
1: and the thing is i didn't realize this was the reason for that when i first encountered it and then i realized like this isn't someone making stupid choices you know because they made a stupid choice they're making a stupid choice because the library of congress told them to essentially right
0: Uh, oh god
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so the less said, the better. I don't mean to dunk on a U.S. institution, but
0: eh, that's why I, I briefly interned for the Library of Congress.
1: Yeah, um, I'm I'm disappointed you didn't bring that up with them, but you know, so, we'll, I'll let it pass.
0: <laughs> I I think actually there were books that I was like, oh, I could read that if I read Russian, and uh, I did not. <laughs> so uh, yeah, actually, they had this uh, companion to World War II. Mm. that came out um, shortly after I was working there and I did a bunch of the research and I was in the publications department I did a bunch of the research on um, I guess non. I guess it was like I can't I'm trying to remember I guess it was a uh, research on non-german war crimes
1: so I guess cateen which we mentioned in the prologue would would come up
0: yeah so, like a bunch on that and like a bunch of like just like little just little massacres here and there Um, Like there was a lot of like little massacres here and there in Eastern Europe in a lot of areas that were like, kind of going back and forth and or like had like a kind of mixed population. And because of principles of territorial sovereignty, a lot of people seem to have decided Mm -hmm. like, well, if we kill a bunch of those people, then we'll definitely be the majority, and this can be like part of our state. My
1: goodness, yeah, yeah. There
0: so, are like a lot of like things like that where just like in like uh ethnically mixed areas, where they were just like, we're going to like murder our neighbors uh...
1: because then it'll be unmixed.
0: Exactly. Yes. Yes. If, we, if you commit genocide, then you have a lot less ethnic mixing. It turns out.
1: Yeah. Getting back to the to the movie, yes. I, I guess people doing awful things (laughs) you know it's it's not something that humans from any era have a monopoly on oh no and you can kind of see why somebody might develop a slightly misanthropic worldview
0: yes (laughs) yes
1: hey guess what humans are really awful
0: yes yes we are
1: when they think that they can get away with it, yeah. Ugh, I'm so depressed. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we should probably finish off this movie.
0: Yeah. So, so he goes to talk to a god.
1: Yep. Again. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um. So he's got his god friend. Uh. He sees a cool wolf.
1: Mm-hmm. Who may or may not be the incarnation of the Mongol god Tengri. Yeah. I think there's. I think that's implied. But we could get back it's, to that. It's
0: implied that he he's like buddies with Tengri. In some way. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, I will say the one thing that I think this movie could have done a little bit better Mm. is that... transition so he now basically says like i will make the mongols obey even if i have to kill half of them
1: yes (laughs) and
0: i think they could have done a little more development on like why he wants to unite the mongols which seems to now be what he wants to do but it's not clear why he wants to do that
1: i i think i would slightly disagree with you there insofar as when he gets out of prison um Basically, he kind of asks his wife for an update, like, what's going on? What have I missed? And she basically says, it's even worse than usual. They're even killing kids who aren't taller than a wagon wheel now. Like, it's just gotten awful. And so then Temujin says... I'm gonna give the Mongols laws, even if I have to massacre half of them. He doesn't say massacre, but he just says kill. But right. y- you know,
0: there, there's, some massacre. there's
1: there's a massacre. This this massacring implied. Yeah. yeah. So it is kind of like, hey, my killing people is for the greater good. Right. So
0: yeah. So there is there is that I guess. But yeah. But it's just like I don't know. Like to some extent, it's like I kind of like honestly except for the fact that it obviously didn't happen this way historically Mm. like I honestly could see like I think it would make sense with the character almost for him to just be like cool I'm just gonna like hang out in this field with my family for now
1: yeah yeah I I feel so sorry for Borte at this point because she's just gone to all this effort and it's like bye (laughs) Yeah, and he's kind of like, well, I've got my hobby slash career to focus on, so off I go.
0: (laughs) Also, like he said, this movie's really a lot like Hamilton. Um, He says goodbye to her, at least. I don't even think he says goodbye to the kids.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And I think think he makes the offhand comment of like, you're a good wife because I know that you'll know that I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oof, okay. Great. Well... I'm glad that you think I'm a good wife. On the other hand, you're not being the greatest husband right now. Right. It's
0: also like the, like one of the like most romantic things that he says to her in this scene is something like, I have names already for all the sons you're going to have. It's like, Ugh, sweet. Good. <laughs> Thanks, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, at least this time it'll be, it'll be, kind of consensual which makes a change
0: she seems to have a great time during the fairly tasteful sex scene
1: oh she does yeah she's she she definitely makes some noises Yeah, she
0: she seems happy
1: yeah um (laughs) anyway so yeah so we kind of time jump
0: yeah so we time jump um he has basically united i guess like most of the mongols with the exception of a group that are still following uh, yamuka
1: Yeah, I would characterise it as they have about half of the Mongols each, but... It's like he has the slightly smaller half, yeah. but yeah. Suddenly, there are a whole lot more people in one area than we have seen hitherto.
0: Right. So it's this, like, it's this is actually the first, and this is the end of the movie, basically. This is the first what I would thing that I would characterize as a really massive pitched battle.
1: Yes. Yeah. The previous battle is much more of a small skirmish yeah. of kind of two raiding parties that go head to head. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so this is really the first and. In- only because it's nearly the end of the movie, Mass Battle, which is interesting and kind of surprising in both a medieval movie in general, but in particular, like, a movie about Genghis Khan. Yes. Uh, There's some real cheery music (laughs) as they go into battle.
1: Yeah, cheery, I would say it kind of, it goes kind of a bit Wagnerian. Yeah. Which is kind of a step change. It also
0: had, like, weird hints of, like, a communist what sounded like a like soviet communist march
1: (laughs) yeah yeah very yes i mean we can get onto this in in a a minute but tonally it's very different to the rest of the film
0: yeah so it's a little it's a little bit of an odd jump it's also interesting because so we've had these like spiritual moments that he's had while communing with his deity but Mm -hmm. Now there's actually an implication that, like, he literally, like, has God on his side, and, like, that there are supernatural forces aiding him in his victory
1: definitely yes it's it's very unambiguous
0: yeah so like i mean so basically like he wins in part like against you know an army that is larger because of like lightning and thunder which he is i guess the only person who's not afraid of it
1: yeah which they do make a point of yeah. in the script because he he literally says well i didn't have anywhere to shelter from it when i was on my own mm-hmm. so i just stopped being afraid of it yeah well Good for you, Temujin, I guess. Uh, Because they make a big point early on in the movie, is that all Mongols are scared of thunder. Mm -hmm. And that's not unreasonable when you on your horse is the tallest object for miles around. That's not just you being silly, it's you being like, I could genuinely be turned into, you know cinders right and
0: you you should be scared i mean you should be scared of lightning certainly and you know obviously like the distinction between lightning and thunder is honestly one that's slightly like fuzzy to me so it certainly makes sense it would have been <laughs> fuzzy to people in the yeah. 12th century
1: yeah they knew that you don't get one without the other You're right so, like they they know.
0: generally like come together so you know yeah. all, all very fair
1: yeah and they're both intimidating in their own way yeah
0: and so yeah, so he wins this battle.
1: Mm-hmm. Not wholly due to divine intervention. There's there's some definite strategy going a- yes. along. Yes, but-
0: yeah, there's definitely implications of that as well. But that like also, it's like I mean, it's interesting because like the divine intervention is then like portrayed as being like part of the strategy. <laughs>
1: yeah, I can I can kind of count on tengri to have my back.
0: Right. And that like and like that yeah, that like it's very much like this is like a piece of my military strategy is like god. Which <laughs> like you know if he can pull it off. Like power to you my friend.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean I guess t- to be fair to him, he is not the first. Yeah. <laughs> And not the only to have, you know, factored that in.
0: I mean, it's better than, like, kill them all and let God sort them out as the, like, military strategy during the Albigensian Crusade and uh, shortly after this in uh, in southern France.
1: Yeah, someone basically said that, didn't they? <laughs> it's like, yeah. if we accidentally kill some people who shouldn't be, well, that's fine. Uh, God will know. Isn't it like, God will know his own?
0: Yeah, there's different versions of it. But yeah, it's what the papal legate, allegedly at least, uh, said that mm. at the gate. Yeah. Of, i think fazier when they were mm. basically like well how do we know who's a heretic and who's not so yeah because you yeah, have to just yeah kill everybody and you know god will send to heaven who he sends to heaven and tell who he sends to hell essentially
1: uh, oh, oh, oh. anyway
0: anyways so he wins and I guess both Targutai and Jamuka do escape. He basically like incorporates all of their people into his army and they all seem like pleased about that, I guess, because like he could have executed them all if he'd wanted to. And so somebody like grabs and kills Targutai, which he is not happy about.
1: No, no, he is not.
0: Which I thought was a little unfair, to be honest.
1: yeah they essentially do it to curry favor with him and he's like no 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 you betrayed your khan off with your heads
0: yeah and it's like i feel like kill it like essentially trying to capture him and then killing him in like that attempt i don't think that they were wrong to expect that that was like what he would want them to do
1: yeah yeah, but hey, you were presumptuous, so now you die.
0: Yeah, so clearly, like everybody's <laughs> going to take a lot of care to not kill Jabuka when they find him. Uh, which I wonder yeah. if, like, that was actually most of the point.
1: <laughs> maybe, maybe.
0: Since uh, they still have their like weird brother bond, so they have this whole conversation at the end. Uh, and I think actually uh Timujin actually asked Jamuka, like, what would you do with me? Like or essentially like, what do you think what do you think I should do with you? And she was like, Clearly you should kill me. Mm. And he does not. He lets him go, which is like a real confident move.
1: It, it is. But also in in Jamuka's defense, Jamuka says, Oh yeah, I'd totally kill you. Right. But he didn't. He didn't. He was in exactly the same position, admittedly, with rather Smaller armies earlier. Right. And he didn't off him. So there is kind of like a certain amount of like. Jemuka is a bad man, but he isn't as ruthless as he makes out, at least not when Temujin is concerned, because, you know, they're they're brothers. They're bros. Right. They're step pals.
0: Yeah. And okay, so this also is Wikipedia research, so I'm Hmm. not going to like stand by it 100%. But out of curiosity, I looked up what does eventually happen with him, and Temujin does eventually basically get stuck having to execute him, but he clearly has like a lot of ambivalence about it. So it says that he eventually was betrayed to Temujin by his own followers, and Temujin then executed them on the principle that betrayal merits the harshest punishment. Temujin also then offered renewal of their brotherhood, but Jemuka insisted that just as there was room for only one sun in the sky, there is room for only one Mongol lord. He asked to be executed by dying a noble death without the spilling of blood, and his request was granted by having his back broken by Temujin's soldiers. And it is said that Temujin buried him with the golden belt he had given to Jemuka when they formed their bond of brotherhood.
1: Huh, interesting. Yeah, I was pretty sure that jemukha ends up dying but yeah Uh, but that is an interesting aspect that i've definitely also come across about mongol culture was that if you were of noble blood then there was a prohibition about spilling your blood and therefore if they wanted to make you die they would find creative ways of doing that without spilling your blood like i think one muslim ruler was wrapped up in a carpet and kicked to death (laughs) which
0: that sounds so much worse
1: yeah, like, beheading is messy, but I, I think, like... But quick. Yeah, exactly. And and I think a former queen regent of the Mongols, several generations down the line, was killed by being sewn up into a bag and thrown into a river mm-hmm. because, again, they didn't want to spill her blood, and it's like, mm, I'm pretty sure that's a really bad way to go.
0: yeah. Uh, also, by the way, the big source for a lot of the for that and a lot of the kind of other things that uh, have come up in this film as well that are based in reality seems to be uh, an actually Mongol source uh, known as the Secret History of the Mongols.
1: Yes, indeed. Yeah, I think we may have even mentioned it in in, in part one. But yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so, which is written for uh, the Mongol royal family in the kind of mid thirteenth, in the kind of early to mid thirteenth century, it looks like. And it seems to have been somebody like written by a Mongol person in Mongolian, although the versions that we have now seem to be uh, transcriptions or translations into Chinese characters or Chinese language entirely. Uh,
1: yes, yes. I think I'd seen that. And I think it was it was rediscovered in the 19th century. And, and it's kind of like, oh, cool. We have this actual like Mongolian perspective. <laughs> on yeah. On this, you know, hugely significant historical feature. And yeah, so that's basically the movie. Yeah.
0: Oh, actually, one more thing that I wanted to mention at the end, actually, is that so he starts talking to his son, who's now 10, about the fact that he has to choose a wife now.
1: Mm, yes, yes.
0: And, uh, you know, it's like, I'll teach you, like, it's really important to like, choose a good wife. And he's like, look, what a good a job I did finding your mother. And then she's like, Psh, I chose you. And he's like, ha, that's true.
1: Yes, I'm really glad you you mentioned that, because that is a that is a really nice and funny and poignant moment yeah, in this film. So yes, and it's a it's a kind of it's a fitting it's a fitting wrap-up, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So yeah, I think we've done a, a good <laughs> we've done a very thorough job yeah. of summarising that film. I think we may have been similar to the runtime, but <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but there is, there is a lot that it's kind of good to have flagged up to kind of like discuss the content and themes, I would guess. I think, I think the first thing I would like to talk about is, uh, is how did you feel about the non-linear structure of the story and the storytelling more generally?
0: I actually really liked it. I thought that they did it, I thought that they did that well, that it very much like it didn't. Fit with the expectations that i entirely had for it but i think that it worked in terms of creating some amount of suspense about like how things got to the point that they got to which is often hard in a story where you essentially know what the end is
1: yeah, yes it just slightly suffer from the titanic problem like, right. but we didn't mention it in the summary but the framing device is essentially we start off he's in jail. Yeah. And then it's like, well, how did I end up here? Dear viewer, um I mean, right. clearly not with that jovial tone, <sighs> but then we kind of wrap back to his childhood. And there's a really nice moment, I mean, clearly not nice for the character, but in terms of the storytelling where he falls through the ice and is subsequently rescued. But just after we've seen this happened, we flash back to Temujin in the prison cell. And him recalling this incident. And it's almost like subtly saying, like, he is kind of sustaining himself in prison by remembering the hard things yeah. that he's survived thus far. And yeah. it's really not spelled out, but I think it's quite clearly implied, which I really liked. I thought it was yeah. very good.
0: Yeah, I thought so as well. And yeah, as I think, like, I think it just like having that as your beginning immediately. Makes you ask the questions both how did he get there and also because you know the end, how does he get out?
1: Yes. And the whole him getting sold into slavery and being in prison, this seems to be wholly the invention of, right. of the script writers. I couldn't find any mention of this incident <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I liked it. As you say, it, it creates some much needed. Suspense. Mm-hmm. I I think in general it's very very tightly scripted. Like yeah. the, there's lots and lots of little setups and payoffs. Like uh you briefly in your summary mentioned the dowry sable coat. Right. Now that was an interesting one because that is then used as kind of like part of sweetening the deal for Jamocha to yeah. help temujin and that is kind of like a creative way that the script writers have adapted stuff in the sources but changed yeah. it because the the sable coat is used as kind of like a sweetener but it's actually for a different chieftain hmm. for for narrative clarity the writers have dispensed with because my goodness just
0: there's already a lot of characters
1: there's a lot of characters in this film And it does a very good job of delineating them. Mm -hmm. But if you were to be more faithful to the sources, it would be very, very hard to follow. And this, I think, you have to be paying attention, but I think they do a good job. And I think if they'd cut more characters, it would have been oversimplified and kind of dumbed down. So it's kind of, I think it strikes that balance really well. Yeah, I
0: think so too. I think they make good choices on that.
1: The one thing I will say is that the tone of the film for about an hour and a half and then the last kind of like six seven minutes is all very of a piece we kind of covered it in the summary the bit with the big climactic battle feels very tonally different it
0: does yeah
1: i mean i don't want this film to be any longer in a sense because it's two hours and that's very neat Mm -hmm. but it does feel like this end bit is kind of like okay, right, suddenly we've got a lot of ground to cover and right, big battle time. And and I, yeah. I don't know how you would get out of that problem and not just kind of like add boring runtime.
0: I actually almost, if anything, actually wish that they'd ended it earlier.
1: Interesting. I
0: think that actually it could have been really interesting to end it with like him going off to unite the Mongols. And not necessarily actually having to like show it happening.
1: Yeah, I can see where you're coming from there, but I guess that there's there's a certain amount of like sort of having to deliver what you said on the tin in the sense right. of like he has he has to he has to have risen. He can't be like you know mostly mostly there or you right. know on his I way.
0: guess he can't. I guess he can't have the movie that's <laughs> like the that's like the rising. <laughs> of the start of the rise to power i I mean you mentioned earlier that they initially did plan sequels to this and especially if there were planned sequels i think that's where i would have done the cutoff
1: yeah i can i can definitely see where you're coming from i understand why they made the decisions that they did but yeah it does it does mean that this film that's really so tightly plotted yeah. suddenly becomes quite woolly i because
0: mean, you also you lose all of the politics of like how did he get almost half the tribes
1: yes i think that you kind of want on the other hand would be hard to do interestingly
0: yeah and it would especially be hard to do interestingly and also quickly
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah um
0: but I, yeah, but I think it, I don't know, but I think it would have been interesting to, like, have even, like, a scene that kind of gave a flavor of what it looked like for him to make an alliance.
1: Yeah, you are left wondering, like, he's got out of prison, like, most of his men got killed earlier. Right, like, where I mean, did he
0: find all of these people? Uh, yeah,
1: and why did they decide, well, you, the kind of smelly former convict guy, <clears throat> you're going to be the Khan that I-
0: Right, he doesn't have a great track record no. at this point.
1: On the other hand, they do mention like when they're dividing the spoils after dealing with the Merkits mm-hmm. that Temujin is much more equitable in how right. the spoils are shared.
0: Yeah, and based on some other things I was reading, it also seems like there's some interesting dynamics in terms of like there's people that he's reaching out to who are maybe like a little bit outside the some of the like clan structures and that him kind of bringing a lot of those people in was one of the things that like he was doing that Demuga kind of wasn't doing.
1: Mm, yeah, kind of like spreading the net a bit wider, you mean?
0: Yeah, and it could have been interesting to see something of that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from. But yeah, it, it, it would have been difficult to do. But on the other hand, the writers in the first like... Right hour and a half demonstrate that they're they're really good at their job. Right, like
0: and it's um, it's clear to me why a bunch of Demuka's men switch that like switch over to him earlier. Oh
1: yeah, because he may have swagger and he may be kind of like, you know, a kind of jovial, you know, superficially fun guy to be around if you're another guy. And if you're a woman, it's very right. different as, as we'll cover, but um yeah, if you're a dude, he's sort of okay. You know, there are probably worse leaders, but yeah, he's
0: Yes, yeah, so I guess I just, like, I, it feel it felt very abrupt.
1: Yes, agreed, definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, if I were to give this film a, like, a star rating, I'd probably, like, ding it slightly, be- because it's yeah. just, as I said, it's so good up until then, and then suddenly it's like, huh, what, where? <laughs> um, right. So the next kind of logical thing to talk about would be probably how it, portrays our quote-unquote hero because i have very mixed feelings
0: it does this thing that and dinos is maybe like shading into some other things that we want to talk Mm. about but it does this thing that i have seen in a number of western medieval movies Mm. where it essentially is like we should like this person because this person is like the one who's nice to women and children
1: yes it definitely does that
0: in a way that even, like, indicates, like, that even, like, portrays essentially, like, him as having a fundamentally different idea about, like, the value of women and children and their lives than, like, any other men.
1: Yeah, I think you said in the summary, like, this is apparently the only guy in this culture who particularly cares about his wife and kids, which right. maybe a couple of his men in his band I like, you know, don't want their wife and kids to die, but at the same time aren't like, I am going to do something to make sure that that doesn't happen.
0: Right. It very Rather much than just seemed... feeling it's
1: undesirable.
0: <laughs> yeah, it very much seemed like if he had made the decision to let their wives and children be, you know, taken captive and probably repeatedly raped and sold as slaves that everybody would have got along with it.
1: Mm, yeah. And they make that point in the script. Like Vorta yeah. says, look, if you run for it, I get it. That's the deal. And it sounds like from the secret history, that is more like how it went when she was actually kidnapped. Because the way the film shows it is that they're both running away. Yeah. And then he gets hit with an arrow. And then she takes action to save his life. So his running away isn't cowardly because, the you know they were right. both running away and it wasn't his decision to
0: run away it was right and she sacrifices herself
1: yeah uh, which i think we'll return to but yeah i think it was very consistent in showing temujin's cunning and his ability to get inside other people's heads and that even starts we mentioned this like as a kid He sees what his father values Uh and uses that to persuade his father or manipulate his father to do what he wants because his father has kind of said, you can't take a wife from these people because they're weak and also I need to take a wife from the Merkits in order to kind of like make it up to them. For my previous, right. for my previous crimes, essentially, right, like, to
0: make up for the fact that like I stole my pre, I stole your mother from them, so now I have to like more honorably, I guess, yeah, take a woman from them for you.
1: Yes, yeah, I have to do it the honorable way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Temujin, wily nine-year-old though he is, <laughs> mm. basically says, "Well, if this tribe is weak." Then it doesn't matter how we treat them. And and Yesuge is like, yeah, oh, yeah, good point. Good point, Junior. Good point.
0: Uh, and then he's like, ah, told one over on you. Yeah,
1: well, and then his his escape is very much like cunning as well. Like when mm-hmm. he's a he's an adult and he's in this kind of like the movable stocks, is he essentially goads his guard into like coming over to beat the crap yeah. out of him. And this guy stupidly underestimates (laughs) the ability of somebody who is kind of attached to some really heavy objects to use Mm -hmm. heavy (laughs) appendages to, like, beat you to death, which, I mean... Yeah,
0: he's very much almost this, like, trickster figure, which is interesting.
1: Yeah, which, you know, a reason you really didn't want to tangle with the Mongols is that they were going to probably outthink you um, and make you do things that you would subsequently regret as you were being hacked to pieces or right. or you know turned into into a into a pincushion with their arrows
0: right and even like on a diplomatic level like it seems like they actually were in a lot of ways like pretty successful at like doing the thing where you give the christians just enough hope that you're gonna convert that like you might convert <laughs> that they're, like, not gonna, like, ally against you with the Muslims.
1: Yeah, yeah, the kind of, if you play your cards right, we just might accept Jesus into our hearts.
0: Right, um, and it's, like, good, like honestly, good job, like...
1: Yeah, which, it's it's dishonorable, but, you, you know, you can understand. I mean, I can't be, like,
0: too worried, honestly, about, like, the ways in which they're being, like, dishonorable and taking advantage of, like, Christian missionaries, uh like, strategies which are inherently, like, very problematic. I-, I can't fault them for that, personally. And it's like, you know, like, good job. Good for you.
1: Um, yeah, so he's very wily and he loves his kids.
0: And that's that's the thing that's a little odd, is that, obvi- like, obviously you see him, like, in battle and he's, like, good at fighting and he, like, beats a guy to death with the stocks. But it's weird that, like, he... He's not portrayed particularly as a violent person.
1: No, no. it's It seems to be like a means to an end rather than something that he gets a kick out of.
0: Yeah, which I kind of like, but it's also like, he did murder a lot of people.
1: Yeah, and there was quite a few occasions where once he'd like captured a city, then like, uh, well... You're all gonna die now, or if you're yeah. not gonna if you're not gonna die, I'm gonna use you as cannon fodder to take the next city over. So you know, right. have have fun storming the castle. Um.
0: Yeah. So while I appreciate the kind of emphasis on like cleverness and strategy, and that like you know, and I actually would kind of like like that. It's like oh, that's that's nice. Like that he likes his family. Like that's great. And as far as I can tell, I think he did kind of like his family, but. Mm. It's weird as a portrayal of somebody who, like, was somebody who, like, could be extremely brutal, and that is part of who he is, and not something that you really see in this film.
1: Yes, it's like, definitely the way that the Mongols were treated by Western history was racist. Oh, yeah, lots of the bad things that he did were not stuff that were made up. Uh, right. Like, people had a reason to dislike this guy and what he'd done. It's just, yeah. They didn't give him credit for being clever and they attributed right. his brutality to, you know, his race or his ethnicity rather than him just being a human and sometimes humans are ruthless, horrible people. Mm-hmm. Um
0: yeah and um, that as far as i can tell some of his choices like toward brutality are like they strike me as being strategic rather than sadistic for the most part
1: i th- i think so i based think so. on the
0: little that i know that it seems to be that they're like ruthless certainly but that their mm. decisions that he made because he thought they made strategic sense not just because he like loved him some murdering
1: yeah and i think i think it's also Possibly worth saying that they that some of those behaviors were also kind of like par for the course, um
0: right? And I wouldn't say in particular that I think he is like I very much would not say that he is like more violent or brutal or ruthless than rule than a number of uh, you know successful armies or generals or you know or forces in you know other parts of the world at this time.
1: Yeah. I think the film is definitely guilty of playing down or excluding elements from the sources that make him seem less of a kind of like not exactly cuddly family man, but right. you know a, a nicer guy than he's been traditionally thought of. Like, yeah, a, I think the secret history, which I've not read, uh, I've I've kind of read it in in secondary sources but there is an incident in his childhood when he and a brother murder one of their stepbrothers um, or half brothers as revenge for this older stepbrother essentially bullying them and stealing a fish from them so their <laughs> their entirely proportionate response <laughs> is to is to like is to murder this brother yeah and, as you do yeah and and their mother Understandably, like loses it at them and is mm-hmm. and calls them destroyers and like a whole bunch of curse words and mm-hmm. and it makes it into the secret history as like mm. this is a bad thing that he did and you know they didn't exclude <laughs> it so yeah so I mean I think the implication was <laughs> that if you steal a, if you steal anything from Temujin you're gonna you're gonna get right. it. but um, <laughs> but yeah they included it. And it doesn't reflect well on him, but the film is kind of like, let's just pretend that that thing didn't happen.
0: Yeah, it's it's very invested in a lot of ways of like having him be, I would say, pretty unequivocally the good guy. Like he really doesn't do anything that does not feel relatively justified.
1: Yes, yeah, and further to that, like in the kind of the end, like wrapping up, like title card. It talks about how the Tangut kingdom is like, I I don't remember the exact turn of phrase, but it's like something like wiped out or wiped off the map or destroyed by Temujin. But the film's implication is that they had it coming because that rich dude was, as you said, a hubristic douchebag. And it's kind of like, well, he definitely was. On the other hand, do all of this potentate's subjects in this town deserve to be wiped out because their leader was an arrogant, horrible, rich guy?
0: Well, and plus they also, I would say in this movie, add to it by like having it like, so he's like in this basically like zoo display and you Mm. have all of these relatively ordinary people who like show up and mock him essentially.
1: Yeah. So yeah. So then it then kind of makes them kind of complicit in their own destruction and like, well, you had it coming to because you laughed at Temujin when he was at his lowest so i guess you yeah. deserve to be hacked down and that hacking down and being killed all happens like off screen it's in a caption card right. and like oh by the way he wiped this this these guys out where if you were you could make a braver decision of have finishing the film with him and his men like even like standing over like the burning like ruins of this town there being bodies everywhere yeah I mean it would mean that it ends on a very grim note but I, th- I feel like it would have been more honest
0: yeah and especially because there's also is this implication that is made that like I think it's very telling that you never see him kill like innocents or civilians
1: yes yeah
0: and that is not true to history it you know isn't in many cases like he's obviously not the only one who's going around you know killing civilians like cough america in most wars cough well and
1: and we talked about about war crimes in world war ii mm-hmm. like yeah the the british wiped german cities off the map having a fairly good idea that that wasn't Necessarily going to be the thing that turned the tide, but they kind of right. justified a lot on the basis of, well, they did it first, and right. also this will be bad for morale. It's like, well, it's technically true, but still, like,
0: right. And then of course the U.S. with you know Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like mm, you know, right,
1: you... right. I mean, a certain amount of it is you kind of have the technology that you have the technology, but still, like wiping people out because you know
0: yeah but anyway so not, my point is really anyway. just to say like <laughs> i certainly don't mean to say that this is like unique to Genghis khan but no. it is certainly a part of who he is and the impact of his conquest like is that he killed a lot of civilians
1: yes yeah and this this film pretty much sweeps that under the carpet and just goes, well, let's just not talk about that, shall we?
0: Yeah, and so the sanitizing of this figure is a bit questionable. Uh,
1: Yes, (laughs) at the very least, yeah. (laughs) We've talked a lot about our hero, but I think then in terms of the next most important character in the film, it's tricky because in a plot sense, it's Jamukha because he's the antagonist, but in terms of our Hero's motivation—it's clearly bought her.
0: Like, yes, she has a lot of impact on his choices.
1: Yeah, the very first minute—well, maybe not the very first minute because he's in the in prison—but from the early scenes, yeah. Um, I wondered how you felt about how she was portrayed, and um, I, I kind of wanted to bring back what we talked about in the pre-film discussion when we were talking about how films depicting the medieval period really struggle between either having women have no agency whatsoever or going the other end and kind of like making them anachronistic... Twentieth uh, or twenty first century feminists who have right. for some re- for some reason are wearing like period you know, garb. Period period garb. Yeah, exactly.
0: So I would say for the most part, I liked this portrayal. She clearly has a lot of agency. I think it's really interesting that there's an emphasis on the fact that she basically chose Temujin. I think it's really interesting that a lot of the events, like a lot of the things that like happened to her are in some ways her choice or that, Mm. although there's a couple of things along that that I want to get back to in a second. I think that like, there's a really interesting like power behind the throne, subtle, uh, subtle implications here and there that like she, not only does she motivate him, but like she motivates him on purpose. It's not like, The thing that you see much more often, which is the like the pure, well, somebody like hurt my wife, you know, sister, mother, daughter, any woman, like somebody like hurt a woman. And that's all about how it motivates a man.
1: Yeah, it's it's not like she's fridged.
0: Yeah, exactly. That like she, she actually doesn't have that many lines, but so many of the lines that she does have are so impactful on him specifically that she is influencing him.
1: I'm really glad you mentioned that, because in general, this isn't a dialogue-heavy film. No. Yeah, you're quite right. She doesn't have that much to say in terms of quantity, which is sometimes where you get the whole, the metrics of like how many times a female character speaks versus male character right. th- speaks can be very reductionistic, as you might imagine. Um, but yeah, you, you're absolutely right. Her lines count.
0: Yes. And I think she really does strike me as a character who comes off as somebody who is in many ways, in fact, even using her own, like the, like the contemporary gender norms to her advantage. And as like part of the way she wields power is by working within that system, which rings very much true to me that she doesn't ever make any effort to take for herself a kind of power that would not be considered acceptable for women to have, but that she's very much kind of working within the system. And uh, essentially, I think you could almost make an argument that she basically like chooses a man that she sees as having potential in order to like herself like become essentially a powerful figure.
1: Yes, and it's not portrayed in a way that... Temujin isn't her puppet. She's... No. They are very much portrayed as... As equals, like, he takes her seriously, she takes him seriously. They both, you know, profoundly respect each other. Yeah. um, Which I really like, because you often don't see that, and you certainly don't expect to see that in a film about (laughs) about Genghis Khan. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So... I really like a lot of that. The one thing that I will say I have very mixed feelings about is the kind of sacrificial aspect on her part. Mm. That there are a couple of different instances, the first being in her kidnapping where she essentially like makes sure that he can get away and then stays behind and and lets herself be captured so essentially sacrifices herself for him Mm -hmm. and also makes the decision to make a sacrifice in terms of basically like handing herself over to be raped in order to be able to make the journey uh to be able to rescue him yeah and both give her agency in some way so Mm. on the one hand like there is an aspect of like she has agency and she is making decisions on the other hand, her agency is ultimately leading her in these cases to sacrifice herself for a man.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it, it's very interesting, isn't it? because in the because the first one, there's kind of like there's a bit more of a justification of like this is an interesting way of interpreting the historical right. material. Y- you know, it's kind of like making her being kidnapped. Like, it's giving her some, at least some agency in that.
0: Right, I mean, she's less helpless than a standard portrayal based on the sources actually would have her, and so that is an interesting decision.
1: Yeah, whereas the whole episode of him being captured and in prison and her having to, like, basically get into bed with, with this guy in order to... So it's, you know, it's consensual in that sense, but in, right. in a very much, like, this is a means to an end, not because I actually want to get into bed with you.
0: Yeah, me. I mean, I it, as I said, it feels very much to me like it is also, like, her essentially, like, sacrificing herself for a man, but that that yeah. one is, doesn't, like, have the justification, as you said, of, like, being an interpretation that might give her more agency of a real event that happened. And so... As I said, I, I have really mixed feelings because I do appreciate that those choices give her more agency, mm. but I just wish that her agency, as I said, wasn't something that was essentially like done in the service of protecting a man.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's there's a sort of a, well... I love this man and also in this culture I kind of need need him in the long term mm-hmm. uh to to survive, I guess is the kind of like the thought process of the character. Right. I, I still I I entirely see where where you're coming from, but I did want to mention a a really I thought this was very deliberate and very sensitive and smart of the of the way the film was shot like her actually being captured in terms of how they depict it it's very similar to when he gets captured in mm-hmm. terms of like in terms of how it's framed how it's shot how yeah just it looks very similar and i and i feel like it's deliberately like
0: mm-hmm.
1: identifying the two of them like together rather than just and and showing how their experiences are you know kind of uniting them i thought it was an interesting and very thoughtful choice how they showed that rather than just being like oh and now she's captured yeah they use that as a kind of opportunity to identify the two of them as a pair yeah rather than her just being his love interest as it were
0: yeah the the one other thing i will say is that Given that especially, um, mm. it does still, I feel like, remain largely his story. And part of that does also mean that, I guess, I would have liked a little more thoughtfulness about like, her interiority, given that she is a character who is presented as having been repeatedly raped.
1: Yeah, that's that is a very, very good point. Yeah, yeah. We don't, like we've said, she gets plenty of agency, but you don't get to see her dealing with you know some of the things that have happened to her
0: right um, and so it just kind of happens and then it just kind of happens and then it goes away and there's almost this implication that like well it goes away because like her husband's not mad at her about it but that doesn't mean that it wasn't potentially a like pretty awful experience for her
1: yeah that experience doesn't go away for her it's i mean i mean it's good that Tamujin isn't a total bastard about it right
0: um, right
1: which we will get onto this but Jamukha yeah <laughs> you'd get different results with him um
0: yeah but it's I mean so one thing that you see all the time is like rape being used to show that like a bad guy is bad
1: yeah it's 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 a it's a gross ugly shorthand you're totally right yeah
0: and and here it's actually this kind of weird opposite where it's like him not being like mad at her for being raped is like then used to show how nice he is?
1: Yeah, which I'm not really sure that that deserves a pat on the back. I mean, it's good that he doesn't react the other way, but yeah,
0: it's It's the like giving a cookie for doing the bare minimum of like <laughs> yeah. decent of like being a decent human being.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um I think before we move on to the next point, I I did want to mention again, kind of in the in defence of the film's handling of, of Borte as a character, was that her decisions over what happens to her body aren't the only way that she demonstrates agency mm-hmm. and she makes sure that she is heard by Temujin and that he takes yeah. her advice on board and this is really important in the situation of like what is going to be done over this kind of like ostensibly accidental killing of Jamukha's brother in the horse yeah. raid and she's basically like look Temujin if you execute these guys to make peace with Jamukha in the short term it will make peace with Jamukha but what will that show to your followers Yeah, and their loyalty to you and and he's again. It's not spelt out as much as I spelt it out there. And his response is not spelt out. Mm-hmm. This film is really good at showing and doing kind of like minimal explaining, but enough that you get it. I think it's really smart in that regard. And he yeah. basically is like, "Good point. <laughs> I will do yeah. that. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Porter, for not allowing me to make a rash decision here."
0: Yeah, and there are definitely a lot of things I do like about her as a character.
1: Yeah. Um and I think it's a it's a it's a really it's a really good uh, performance. Um Yeah. I mean everyone is generally strong, but um I just thought I'd mention in passing in case I forget to mention it later is that in terms of the the main players, she is the only actor who is actually uh, Mongolian. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, yes, uh, her name is Hulan Chulun, I think, um, is the, that's about as approximate a pronunciation as you're gonna you're gonna get. But uh, yes, yeah, so I was kind of helped out by the fact that I could read the uh, the tra- the Cyrillic transliteration mm. and go, oh yeah, okay, that that that's coming out how the Latin tra- transcription suggests. But uh, anyway. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, I also so thought I, it was interesting, by the way, I looked her up too, and uh, she's actually a director, as well as an actress.
1: Oh, I didn't realise that. Yeah. I didn't know that. I, I did want to, again, if we get around to it, because I realise this is alri- already quite a long episode, but <laughs> the uh, casting director who, like, quote-unquote, discovered her uh, is also, like, seems like a really interesting character, mm-hmm. um, and she I definitely want to talk to, in you know, kind of in the wrapping up process. But, but yeah. anyway, yeah, so... Tied closely from Borte as a character is, and we've already touched on it quite a lot, but the contrast between Temujin's attitude towards women and Jamukha's hashtag, yeah. let him die.
0: Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, the, the really good bet where he's like, Psh, just leave that wife. I can give it to you new wives.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ugh. Uh, and then later on, like, when they're around the campfire, he's kind of, like, ostensibly complimenting Temujin's for a decision, but also kind of, like, slightly sending him up amongst the men because it's yeah. okay to do with your second in-command, in command, apparently, if you're Jem'Hur. Basically mm. kind of saying, well, if it was me, I'd execute. He even, like, does the kind of, like... <clears throat> kind of, like, across-the-neck gesture, which I'm not sure yeah. he necessarily did uh, right. back then. But, yeah. you know, you have to make concessions to a like, uh-huh. 21st-century audience. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, and it's kind of like, Uh,
0: hashtag let him die. Yep. Yeah, no, he is awful. Yeah. And it is this weird, like, let's use basically, like, being nice to women or mean to women as like a yardstick for how to demonstrate that somebody's like a good or bad person. Mm, yeah, and it like makes him this weird foil, and I think it's especially interesting that it does that in that area, whereas in most areas he doesn't actually necessarily seem quite that different.
1: Mm, yeah,
0: like he. He and Temujin clearly both have the same, like, weakness to some extent in terms of, like, feeling like they have to treat each other with some amount of, like, care and consideration that is different from what they would show most of their enemies because they have this, like, brother bond, mm. which, you know, can come back to bite them. There's kind of an implication, I guess, that Temujin is more generous uh, to those who are fighting on his behalf.
1: Yeah, definitely. Definitely it seems to be that Jemukha is a bit more like, there's more ways in which he kind of emphasizes who the big dog is, whereas, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like, weirdly, like, Temujin is portrayed as being, like, much more equitable and kind of like, that moment when those two troopers desert to join his gang. Yeah. He's basically like, look, dude, it's democracy. Mongols are democratic. and right.
0: They can choose whoever they want their leader to be. Like, you and can't do sucks, anything.
1: sucks to beat you. I didn't steal them. They chose me. So what are you going to... I mean, he's, he's way more conciliatory than the way I'm portraying it, if you haven't seen the film. But right. he's basically like, look, this is about freedom, dude.
0: <laughs> right. Live free or die hard. Mongol style. Yeah,
1: yeah. Which, I mean, is interesting because I I don't know a ton about this, but from what I understand, as I already mentioned, Mongolia was very much in the Soviet orbit and therefore mm-hmm. had like essentially like Soviet communism, like Mongolian style. You know, basically it was kind of like the Warsaw Pact, but over there kind of mm-hmm. thing they were very much like step out of line and the red army pays you a visit i think not as far as i know that they ever did but uh, but yeah in comparison to the like central asian republics that were part of the soviet union proper mongolia my understanding of it has had like a relatively successful transition to democracy mm. which those countries did Definitely haven't. Uh, That's interesting. So I thought that was interesting. And I think the Mongolian involvement in this film being made was actually somewhat limited. Like, Mm -hmm. I read, admittedly, on the Wikipedia page, that they wanted to shoot some of the film in Mongolia proper, but ended up not because there were protests ahead mm. of the film in Mongolia because I think people were sort like preemptively upset about how Genghis Khan was going to be portrayed
0: they shouldn't have been
1: and, well yeah it, it was, <laughs> yeah this film goes out of the way to kind of present him as basically like a decent dude and if he ever did mm-hmm. things that were that were nasty it was he had ample justification like the he's whole, like the
0: nicest guy in the 12th century yeah according to this movie
1: yeah like him wiping people out is off stage and mm-hmm. his killing half of the mongols is for the greater good
0: right and also like again like a decent amount of it is like off stage too like yeah this this clearly wasn't like the first battle no no like no way like i, I you know i would have to look more things up but like no way there weren't like additional battles where additional people were killed en route to like getting himself to be in charge
1: yes but maybe those would have been it t- later on i mean it's, it's yeah. interesting because two hours is actually quite a short run time for like a sort of traditional epic like you're yeah. sort of allowed in that genre to to go two and a half three three hours if you yeah. if you want to but i don't know how much of that was kind of like pragmatic kind right. of like marketing decisions of like you want to get a western audience in to see your subtitled film right you know don't make it longer because they might decide against it and
0: yeah and a film that covers 20 years too it's also like doing that in two hours is you know
1: it's it's pretty impressive and it, yeah. I mean, we've we've talked about the structural like it's very neat and tidy for most of the runtime and then suddenly mm-hmm. isn't yeah yeah i i have i have such mixed feelings about this this film because as yeah. a well-constructed piece of art, a lot of thought has been put into it. its I'm amazed I haven't talked about how just incredible it is to look at. It it's is
0: a beautiful movie.
1: So amazing. I actually looked yeah. up the cinematographers and they weren't like particularly as far as i could tell august people you would go well of course it looks beautiful Mm -hmm. it's shot by you know roger deakins uh who's kind of like this this, if you can name a cinematographer that's the guy that you can think of um like there were two guys one was I, i forget his name but he was he sounded like he was russian and he'd done like the like night watch and day watch films which are probably like the most famous thing he's done and then the other guy who i think was swiss or french like his most famous film is school of rock right which which is kind of like that's not something you necessarily associate with grand you know historical epics and yeah I, i mean this film i would say is worth watching just for how good it looks Um, yeah
0: and i i will say i was actually like i had not expected that this was going to be such a like well done film i mean for 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 my own podcast i do quite a range of like things in terms of just how quality films they are like in terms of i've done like the seventh seal and i've done the night before christmas the netflix movie (laughs)
1: um yeah but i think it'd be fair to say that the films that are good bits of art on their own terms are by far the minority
0: <laughs> yes yeah i've done more bad movies than i have good ones and part of the reason for that actually to be honest is that a lot of these like historical epic movies honestly i don't actually think most of them exhibit like especially great filmmaking i think most of them have like lazy character development and uh, you know, a lot of emphasis on action, but they're not doing anything, especially like interesting with like the visuals or the cinematography. It's just like a bunch of like CGI murdering. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and like, I-, I was expecting something, to be honest, like more along the lines of like a kingdom of heaven, mm. like big showpiece battles, but like not that much going on. And was yes. very like pleasantly surprised that this was like a really interesting movie in a lot of ways, uh, both visually and character-wise.
1: Yeah, definitely, it's a hot mess. But incidentally, contemporaneous with quite a bit of this film, just to give people right. like your, you know, if you're kind of a bit fuzzy on when Temujin slash Genghis Khan was uh, was around and like quote unquote taming the step. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, it's basically the time that uh Richard the Lionheart is heading over to see if he can recapture Jerusalem.
0: Right. I mean, I think it's 11 Slightly 1192 later, but... is the uh the scene where he's like in jail and the uh uh Saladin's conquest of Jerusalem is 1187.
1: Okay. Right. Yes. So it's kind of yeah, it's a, it's around this same same time because this this film I think the latest thing we see is like the 1206 temujin yeah. is proclaimed great khan or you know however yeah. you want to translate the like genghis slash chingis bit of his name uh, right
0: and there will be essentially in uh you know some a couple you know a decade or so after this there will be some essentially like short-lived crusader successes in part because basically the muslims are distracted fighting the mongols
1: yeah i I mean i think that um the the mongols kind of like like there were there was stuff on either side of the ledger because i understand that there was meant to be like a big georgian contingent who were meant to be right. coming down to help out the western christians uh-huh. but they got wiped out by the mongols and basically right. had to send a grovelly note to the pope saying uh, you know that army we said we'd be sending we don't have one it doesn't exist anymore because some folks showed up over the horizon <laughs> and killed us all so right. we're really sorry you know, we we would normally honor our promises, but we don't we don't have an army to send. Yeah, we had a cataclysm, and yeah, it seems to be that the Mongols were very good at delivering. You a, like a yeah. civilization shaking, you know. Yeah. I mean, we talked about Baghdad being like flattened, right? Uh, so yeah, again, my big problem with this film is that it makes a you know a very unpleasant person seemed pretty benign and like justified
0: yeah it's it's a it's a bizarre choice that as i said like chingis khan according to this movie i think he actually is the nicest person in the 12th century
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and (laughs) in reality it was probably okay if you were following him and you didn't make any mistakes
0: Right. And I'm not sure I have a better candidate for who I would call specifically the nicest person in the twelfth century. But I don't think it's Genghis Khan. Yeah.
1: Anyone who managed to be any sort of like potentate <laughs> who was who right. who was nice and also didn't get like deposed for being like weak. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the the, the real answer of, like, who is the nicest person, like, I'd have to think about it, but, like, probably there's, like, a saint who just, like, did their own thing and, like, thought a lot about Jesus and didn't bother anybody, and it's probably them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, But very difficult to be a ruler and not horrible. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so this film doesn't have a lot of happy fun times. It's mainly just, like, uh, Temujin's, like, grudge against against humanity being justified by him having right. a really hard life but we at least do see him having like some fun around the campfire and you know yeah. a few nice moments with his beloved so mm-hmm. it's not all doom and gloom Place but
0: yeah. yeah
1: yeah he's a loving father
0: mhm this guy should get the like husband and father of the year award
1: yeah definitely <laughs> so on balance, would you would you recommend that people check this out if they haven't already watched it?
0: I would recommend this on the whole. I, uh, you know, would definitely say like take some of the historical stuff, you know, and in particular this portrayal with a grain of salt. Mm. But I think it's a really interesting and well done movie, and also just on the side of in terms of like the kind of things that people tend to learn about in terms of the medieval world. The Mongols are obviously extremely important and very much understudied. They're often not covered in your standard medieval history survey, like college course. Mm. I will be covering them. Uh, in fact, I <laughs> am look forward to reading more of the secret history because I plan on making my students read some of the secret history.
1: Yeah, that sounds like a, yeah, like a really good idea because it's not like they were kind of like in a encapsulated bubble kind of... Over there, they very much broke out of that and kind of like turned up on the doorstep of Europe and and the Middle East, and suddenly, you know, very much made themselves relevant in a yes (laughs) in a terrifying and horrible way.
0: Yeah, and I think if you want to know what the medieval world is like in the late twelfth and into the thirteenth century, I you know even if your focus is primarily Europe and the Islamic world, you can't do that well, in my opinion, without also uh, getting some amount of familiarity with the Mongols. And so I think that there is a lot of value in, like, having a overall fairly well done movie about them that is also, I will say, like, from their perspective. Like, I'm very glad to see that there's a movie that's from their perspective, as opposed to essentially a movie from, like, a Western perspective about them.
1: Yeah, just going, oh no, the Mongols have shown up. They are just, like, the barbarians of the week that we have to fight off
0: <laughs> Exactly like it would be all too easy to do the movie that's like 300 but set in like the thir- in like the late 12th 13th century with like the mongols as the barbarians
1: Oh yeah yeah and and that's something that that was definitely the way that they were treated in in military history until like yeah. I think the second half of the 20th century was uh, at least in the West, they mm-hmm. weren't given the credit for actually being smart and right. good. They were just like, well, there's lots of them because, you know, there's lots of people in Asia, so... <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, oh, oof, okay. Yeah, they basically come over and they swamp you because there's more of them, so it's not really a fair fight. And it's like, uh, no, like... <laughs> frequently they're outnumbered and still clean somebody's clock, so... yeah. They were nasty, but they were smart.
0: Yeah, and the one thing that I will say, like, low-key in defense of this portrayal of Genghis Khan is that I can kind of understand it as a corrective to the portrayal you would expect.
1: Definitely. Like, I haven't seen either of these films, but they were Hollywood films in... There was one with John Wayne as Temujin. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Um... And then there was another which uh, had Omar Sharif in the 60s, mm-hmm. which at least they're not casting a white guy, but still.
0: Right. I Yeah, that was actually the other thing that I meant to comment on is that I really appreciate that they did not whitewash this film.
1: Yes, yeah. And I think that is possibly a function of the director and it seems like judging by the names at least, mm-hmm. I haven't done huge, huge amounts of research. But yeah. the director is of like a mixed ethnic background. Like mm-hmm. he's he's part ethnic Russian, but I think I read he also has grandparents and great grandparents who are Tatar and also Buryat, and the Buryat people mm-hmm. I discovered are like a related people to the hmm. modern Mongolians, so okay. so yeah, that's that's kind of part of his his yeah. heritage, and yeah, a lot of the the crew seem like they are Central Asian or mm-hmm. from like ethnic minorities within Russia, because yeah. again, this is something that is quite poorly understood about the modern Russian Federation is. Mm -hmm. That Federation bit tends to get dropped off because what's that doing there? It's just an extra word. And it's like, no, there's actually like the, whilst the Soviet empire collapsed, that didn't mean that all of the different ethnicities that were part of the Russian empire before it and that the Soviets kind of like inherited slash reconquered. Yeah. Russia is much yeah. more diverse than we give it credit for. Um, yeah, And some of that is just in terms of, like, the Russian leadership. Uh-huh. Most of those folks are ethnic Russians. So, uh-huh. so you don't necessarily see that diversity that's kind of, like, right. under the surface if you know where to look. So, yeah. yeah. Actually, I think this would be a good time to mention... I already flagged her up, but the, she was the casting director, but also the second unit director.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Gulshat, or Guka, to give her like a shortened, her kind of nickname. Amarova, who is Kazakh, but mm-hmm. she, like prior to her role on this film, had actually been a director in her own right and had won a Copenhagen Film Festival Award for, like, best film directed by a woman uh, which uh, oh, wow. so yeah and
0: I guess you need to have that award because women can't be nominated for the regular best director award but
1: well, yes <laughs> I, I think the the award only existed for a few years because I think I, I don't know I don't know the history of it but maybe the 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 reading of it was like, well, it's good that they that women get an award. On the other hand, having a separate award is kind of like, it <laughs> is kind of pretty damning in its in its own right. Yeah,
0: I like. I honestly like. I almost wish that it that something like that category would exist just because I don't trust the academy to like not ignore women. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: because I remember somebody mooted the idea of like abolishing the best actor best actress distinction and people quickly pointed out that like well that's very high-minded and everything but then you would just go from having a you know a list of I don't know is it five five on each on each category yeah yeah you'd you'd go from a situation probably where instead of having like five men and five women for each for each category you suddenly just get. You know, four men and one woman, and that woman right. doesn't win. Um, yeah, yeah. Or or a list of ten, and it's like one or two women, seven yeah, men it's... and
0: three women, or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and again, it goes to the guy because uh, yeah, yeah. So hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was that was interesting to mention, and and she had worked with. Sergei bodrov senior previously as an actor and he co-wrote the film that she won the award for so it seems like he kind of like respected her work and had a Mm -hmm. role in kind of pushing her career forward which seems pretty cool i don't know a huge amount of detail but i just thought huh that is an interesting person that i didn't know her film existed and i didn't know Mm -hmm. that it won awards and i'm gonna have to add it to the hugely long shortlist so yeah yeah so, yeah. you know, some further homework for me to do as well as reading the <laughs> secret history and countless other things. Right. Um, right. I feel like unless you had anything else you wanted to mention that we've omitted.
0: No, I think that's everything I especially wanted to highlight. And I, I know this has been very a, a very long episode, uh, so you <laughs> will have fine. a lot to do in terms of editing. I apologize
1: yeah yeah just add it to the homework pile <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh this is this has been so much fun, Sarah. Thank you so yeah. much for coming along.
0: thanks so much for having me and for getting me to watch this movie yeah
1: i'm I'm glad to have had an opportunity for a rewatch and to appreciate it in a bit more depth um before we go, so I would hugely recommend, listeners, that you check out Sarah's show. But Sarah, where would one find that?
0: So uh, my show is called Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. And uh, you can find that on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called these days, and should be <laughs> any other podcasting platforms, and also on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. Cool.
1: Yes. So yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan, Sarah. So it's, it was really great to get to talk to you and, and have you as a guest. So thanks very yeah, much. Thank you
0: so much. this was a lot of fun. I'm really glad I got to come on.
1: Yeah. okay, so thanks very much folks and Das Dasnya. So that's it for this episode. but before I go I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovic and the highly skilled migrants for the use of their song cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalog on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at Podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes, so if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media... Please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves, and bye for now.